0: kids, stop voting to kill Kirk and listen up, it's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Rory Blythe. This is Jeff Maceiolark, here to announce show number 83 with guest Fritz Onion, recorded live Friday, October 1st, 2004. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering hands-on VB.NET. ASPNET and C sharp classes online at www.franklins.net and by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASPNET web applications online at www.datadynamics.com and by Dundas Chart. Advanced technology, advanced results online at www.dundaschart.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, Microsoft technologies in-depth for IT managers and developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who has officially approved this message, Carl Franklin.
1: Thank
2: you, thank you, thank you. I am Carl Franklin, and I endorse and approve this message. How you doing? Um, Just in case you didn't get the joke when Jeff said it. Uh, This is Carl, and you're listening to .NET Rock Show 83, live from New London, Connecticut, and Portland, Oregon. Rory, how are you
3: this evening, sir? I'm doing pretty well, Um, you know, in general, I guess. Uh, The the couch over at my shrink's office is, like, permanently imprinted with the shape of my buttocks (laughs) um, because I've been spending so much time there in the past couple weeks, but I I guess I'm, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I have my ups and downs, but I think I'm having one of my ups today. All right, we good. Go to elevator. <coughs>
2: That's good. That's good. So what uh, what happened with you this week? Besides, you know, living at your shrink's office.
3: Let's see. What did I do? I'm trying to. I'm trying to remember. Actually, uh, uh, what I did. I got my haircut, um, and I uh, and I did some other stuff. I I've been doing some of the programming. I've been messing around with my iPack phone, ah, um, because uh, uh, I love coding for the little compact devices. And it's it's really dorky, but I've been writing um, a Latin tutor for my phone because really? I also got one of those foldable Bluetooth keyboards. And so I can type to my heart's content. Hmm. And uh, I've written this just totally, totally dorky XML backended application. But it's partially because as, as a presenter now, I'm kind of worried that I'm not going to get enough development in. So I wanted to make sure I was still getting the experience across the board with a bunch of different things. You said you made a Latin tutor? Well, it's it's not exactly a Latin tutor, but it, it'll test you on your Latin conjugations. And I'm going to be adding um, a vocab testing section pretty soon. That'll go through all the different declensions of the of the different uh, Latin nouns and adjectives. And uh, I'm going to add Latin phrases. It's all mainly based on the most popular Latin text, which is Wheelock's Latin. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I, I like learning languages, and you know i'm sort of in escapist mode right now with all the girlfriend problems so yeah, i think yeah. this is about as escapist as it could possibly get yeah well okay well good luck i also that. i also saw a movie i saw a movie <laughs> i saw a movie what'd you say? with a girl Ooh. that's all i'm saying about that but yeah oh, okay. i saw a movie and um <laughs> and it, and it was that movie the uh the sky captain in the world of tomorrow and um, um it was crappy so anyway that's my whole review of that movie so that was that was my week what's going on with you
2: yeah, I'm not going to mention what Sahil is suggesting in the chat room, but uh, I think you can read that, and I agree with him. Um, oh, it's been a very, a very good week for me, uh, just been actually spending a lot of time with family that I haven't been spending in the last couple of weeks because I've been teaching and trying to catch up and stuff, yeah. doing a little bit of coding, doing a lot of uh, reading and a little bit of development as well. And so, you know, it's just been a quiet week in like, well, what can I say? But uh, we did get lots of mail, so I won't belabor my stupid week with uh, (laughs) – so let's just get right to the mail here. Uh, Lots of good stuff here. In fact, the first one we got was from a guy named John Bonanno who says, guys, after listening to Friday's Ask Rory segment, I was reminded of a song a friend of mine wrote called The Binary Song uh, dedicated to us programmers. He's a local comic musician uh, and here in New Orleans – anyway, if you get a chance – Check out the song at this link, shrinkster.com slash 10 F. And let me let me just pull it up right here.
4: This is the binary song, binary song. (laughs) Yeah. And I want you to sing along. Who, me? You know, this is the binary song. He said, binary song? Uh huh. And I want you to sing along. It goes One zero one zero one zero one one zero zero one zero one zero one 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 zero one, one, one zero one, one zero, one one, zero, one, one, zero one, <laughs> one 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 That's the binary song.
2: All right, well, that's all we're going to play of that, but I thought I'd just give you a little taste of that one. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> How cool is that, huh? Somebody was picking That's, up on that theme. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty weird, <laughs> kind of weird. <clears throat> anyway, this this one's from Damien McGivern, who says, "Hi everyone, great show and all that shit." I just watched a great program on BBC Two called Horizon about uh, synesthesia, and the subject of his emails. I know why Rory's nuts and why we all like music so much. Synesthesia, and it's S Y N A E S T H E S I A. If a person is synesthetic, they can taste words or see colors when they think of a number. There are loads of weird sensory connections, basically, uh, and it's common among artistic people. I have also heard that some drugs like ketamine produce a similar effect. I believe it's a horse tranquilizer, so please, no exterminating. I don't want to be sued. The program puts forward the idea that we're all synesthetic to a certain degree and that synesthesia – synesthesia, I
3: don't know how it's pronounced –
2: Helped us evolve by – is it synesthesia? Yeah.
3: And just okay. for the record, um, all my friends who ever took ketamine, all they ever did was poop in their pants. But go on. Ah, all right.
2: So that's why it's a horse tranquilizer, right? Because yeah. it makes you poop in your pants. All right. So uh, they the program puts forward the idea that we're all synesthetic to a certain degree and that synesthesia helped us evolve by kick-starting language. And that is root of our desire to create. You should check it out as there's a test you can do to see if you're synesthetic. It'll be interesting to see how many of us programmers are synesthetic. As I recall, Carl mentioning that he believes music and programming are linked in some way. This may be the missing link. <clears throat> Not just me who thinks that, by the way. We all sort of do. Um, I recall hearing somewhere that the BBC uh, is going to make selected programs available via the web. So if you're lucky, you may be able to watch it soon. And he's got some links. The Horizon website is shrinkster.com WG. The definition is at WJ. P.S. Have you seen Shrinksters Shrinklet? Yes, we have, and we're going to talk about that. Cheers, Damien. Damien, congratulations. You're the proud recipient of .NET Rock's piece of useless crap. There you go. Uh, this one came from Luke, and he says, Hi, Carl and Rory. I have a few comments about the whole pet store debacle that was brought up in the last .NET Rock show. <clears throat> Excuse me. As stated on the show, the architecture of both applications were completely different. The Java Pet Store was never originally written with performance in mind, but rather served as a blueprint of best patterns and practices for building scalable applications using J2EE. The .NET Pet Store, on the other hand, .NET version, was written specifically for this benchmark and therefore tried to squeeze out every last millisecond of performance. Which architecture may be better is besides the point. What mattered is that the results did not show which platform was faster. It only showed which Pet Store implementation was faster. Unfortunately, Microsoft still published the results of this benchmark and tried to communicate their potential customers to their potential customers that .NET is X times faster than Java, even though they knew then that the benchmark was flawed. All right. Well, anyway, this is the interesting part. He says, by the way, I just, uh, just because I skipped the standard boilerplate doesn't mean I don't love the show, listen to every episode of my iPod in the car, yada, yada, yada. For all their iPod users out there, I wrote something on my weblog recently. Which you can get at shrinkster.com slash 10E10E. E. And I believe, Roy, we have pushed shrinkster.com into, into the third, third yeah. digits now. Yeah, <laughs> into the third character. <clears throat> no, and, I, and I bet if you looked at the database in shrinkster.com, many of them came from.NET ROCK. So, anyway, I wrote something on my web log, web log recently on how to convert.NET ROCK shows to the AAC audiobook format. Doing this will make your iPod save a bookmark when you stop or pause a .NET Rock show, so when you play that file later, it will continue playing from the bookmarked spot instead of starting over at the beginning. Cool, very cool. Would it be possible to provide these directions either linked or copied somewhere on Franklin's Net? Blah blah blah. You were better publish it. Even better to publish the show in this format. Thanks. We will definitely check it out and see if we can do that. We it looks like you need iTunes in order to do that. I. I scanned for some uh, quick audiobook format converters. I didn't see any, but maybe
3: maybe Jeff can help us out there.
2: But we'll uh, we'll give that a shot, Luke.
3: And and that's that's Luke Huttman, the uh, the guy who wrote Sharp Reader. I just wanted. Oh, to, it is. Yep, that's no him. kidding. It's the same one. So what's up, Luke? Just had to get a little shout out there for Luke. Hello, Luke. Okay. It here is. We go. It's Luke Huttman. Yep. Thanks, man.
2: I should have known that because it was from Luke at Huttman Use Sharp Reader all the time. Using it right now, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> And uh, this is the Shrinklet thing I was talking about. Mitch Denny wrote about this on his uh, blog and wrote this thing. He says, I've come up with a little utility, which you can get at shrinkster.com 102, which runs as a tray app, which periodically scans the clipboard looking for URLs. When it detects one, it pops up a balloon and asks you if you would like it shrunk. If you don't know what shrinkster.com is, check it out. It's a cool little web app like tinyurl.com. I was put on to Shrinkster after listening to .NET Rocks. Anyway, download the setup file and give it a go. So basically what it does is a little balloon pops up and it says, hey, would you like to shrink that URL that you just copied into the clipboard? And you click on it and then it shrinks it and then puts it back into the clipboard. Hmm. And you can click on the balloon again if you want to actually test it out and go to the website. I like that. It's nice. It's very cool except, uh, dude, Mitch, you have to put a minimize button on that form. (laughs) 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 We don't want that thing hanging out. And if you close it, it's gone. So think about that. Anyway, it's a great thing, though, and I love it. I've been using it all afternoon. This one came from a guy who calls himself Stuff, S-T-U, capital F, capital F, from Europe. He's a Spanish guy born in Belgium, living in Germany, working for a Dutch company. (laughs) Hi, folks. Just discovered your show, although I already heard about it in the past. And by the way, saw the ad in Code Magazine. As a few people in this world, I'm a huge Mac fan, Mac OS X lover, but also a .NET lover, and I work as a .NET developer. I love that I have for the next version of the OS from Cupertino the love that I have for the next version of the framework from MS. Uh, Okay, I think you understand what he's trying to say here. Sorry to say it, but the only one reason why I still keep having a PC is .NET. I just discovered Mono and wanted to know if you have good feedback on this product. But specifically, I want to ask you what you think about that. Well, we actually did a show with a guy who wrote it and manages that project, Miguel de Acasa. You can go back and look at that on our website and listen to it. At the very beginning of .NET, Microsoft said that it would be OS independent. You remember? Finally, it was only for Windows, so what? Anyway, guys, keep on doing what you do and keep on having listeners on iPods. See you. Next one is from – this is great. This is from Andy – uh, Baloo and speaking of Max and things like that he says hi guys love your show keep up the great work your quick wit and acerbic humor make the show entertaining as well as informative this guy must be smoking crack what do you think
3: right <laughs> <laughs> I, I just <laughs> I, well, I didn't understand that big word that he used what was the word that started with an A? Yeah. acerbic
2: yeah A-C-E-R-B-I-C
3: well, yeah I mean well yeah I can't do anything with it right now but I'm gonna look yeah. that up later and figure out what look he was up meaning
2: in, look that up in word for windows now to the question. I know you hate making predictions, but please look into your crystal ball and riddle me this. Do you think Microsoft will ever release a version of the .NET framework for Mac OS X and Linux? It seems to me that the way they architected .NET and created the rotor shared source, it would probably take them all of a couple of weeks to create both ports of the entire framework. Oh, boy. He is smoking crack.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <God>. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Granted. Microsoft is in the business of selling copies of their OS, but if Sun can release Java for multiple platforms, why can't Microsoft release .NET for multiple platforms? Why do I want to see them do it? Because it's the only friggin' argument that I keep hearing from Java advocates. If you go .NET, you have to stick with Windows. Okay, so maybe a comeback to that argument is, what about Mono and .gnu? But because Microsoft doesn't directly support these projects, they're always behind in technology. What do you think?
3: Well, you know what? He used some language in there. The uh, If you... If you uh... Go with .NET, you, you have to stick with Windows. And I would change a little bit to say that if you go with .NET, you get to stick with Windows. Yes. All right. So it's just a matter of switching some of the messaging around. That's true. Right?
2: Yeah, it's just one little word and it takes on a
3: whole new <laughs> All meaning. of a sudden, it's an advantage. But the other issue here is that he was talking about Rotor. And Rotor is a totally unoptimized academic project. Right. It's yeah. it's not meant to be deployed. Yes. Um, and although you can build Rotor on, on, under Mac OS 10 you're not going to be able to do anything really useful with it. So right. um rotor's not really... Rotor was never meant to do that, and and it's also just an implementation of the CLI, so you're not going to get the full framework under Rotor right. unless you get it through, just through some illicit means, like by breaking licenses and things like that. Right. So, so I guess uh, your
2: best bet is mono, you know?
3: Yeah, Rotor's just, not an option.
2: Just keep watching that. And uh, for that, I just happened to get this email from my cousin Mike, Mike Bouchard, um, today, which was a, is a movie where, you know, the Macintosh commercials, they have an all-white background and some guy just standing up and talking about why he likes the Mac. The Blue
6: Screen of Death.
2: Yeah. Well, listen to this one
6: editing is all mac-based now. I mean, you know, there are programs out there on the PC, but whether you're using Avid or using Final Cut Pro, you're working on a Macintosh. Using a Mac is a little different than using a PC. It's not so much operating a computer as it is sort of tricking it, fooling it into doing what it is you really want it to do. Uh, you kind of have to sneak up on a Mac. I don't feel like I'm operating the Mac so much as I'm just there sharing the Mac experience, <laughs> and if I can do something useful while the Mac is willing, so much the better. One of the coolest features of the Macintosh is it's really easy to shut down. Uh, all you have to do is be using a piece of software, and then poof, it goes away. It's gone. It's shut down. You didn't push any buttons. You didn't close. You didn't even save. It's just gone. Unless you want to shut down a Mac. Oh, that's a whole other story. I mean, you try to close a program, and it locks up. The music's perfect. Funny, what is it? it really the Cloverleaf is right. period thing. But it's unnatural and ultimately useless interrupt keys. Then nothing moves. Then you push the power button, and it won't turn off. You go around and unplug it, and you better hope you're not on a laptop, because then you got to find the damn battery and try to pull that out of the thing. Will never shut down. So I put my CD in the CD-ROM tray, and I'm copying media off that CD, dragging it onto my desktop, dragging it onto my desktop, dragging it onto my desktop. I eject it, and where did my files go? It's the only operating system I know of where click and drag does not mean you actually copy or move anything. No, you're just making shortcuts on your desktop. So I've got my next CD, and I slam it into the CD-ROM tray, and lo and behold, it starts playing all by itself. I'm looking for a way to turn it off. Finally, out of desperation, I click and drag the CD into the garbage can. The system locks up. So I go to the Cloverleaf period spacebar thing, hoping I can stop the program. And I get a little caution window saying, careful, interrupting this program may lock up the system. I try to click OK, but the system's already locked up. <laughs> I like that. That's so you can attach a chain and use it as a boat anchor. The man is some kind of bizarre psychological warfare on me because I'm working late at night. And at the corner of my eye, I keep seeing this thing jumping up and down. The update manager is bouncing at the bottom of the screen like a Jack Russell So I'm looking around, in the list of the files, trying to find the executable that wants me to update, and if I click on any one of them by accident, I rename it. Oh no, it's been renamed nothing. It was some kind of important system file, and the computer crashes. On a PC, no data is really lost. I mean, there's a way to undelete a file. If you know what you're doing in DOS, you can go in and recover anything that's been corrupted. On a Mac, if you lose a file, you run to the store get a copy of the Mac version of Norton Utilities. You run back only to have Norton go, You idiot! You own a Macintosh! The file is... Gone. It's just gone. <laughs> don't have any tools or any kind of buttons or whatever dials or switches on the bottom of the screen because if you reach for them, the dock menu comes up. Ah! <laughs> You've got to, like angle around and slide and dodge the things. This to video get is perfect. You it's really gotta see this. Boxing with your computer. I can put it on the bottom. I can put it on You the gotta left. put a link to this. Yeah, we'll put right. a link oh, to it. No, I can't put it on the top. That's reserved for the mighty blue apple. <laughs> Go. My name is Hunter Kressel, I'm an editor, and I cut together everything you saw tonight on a Macintosh. Crash
2: different Yeah, is what it says. At the end. Mac
6: killed my inner child. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, you guys really gotta see that.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, what he says is great, but it's funny to watch too. Alright. Moving right along. This one came from uh, Daniel Skibinski, who says, uh, angle bracket, boilerplate mode equals on, intensity equals suck up, and angle bracket. (laughs) Hi, I'm a European currently not on vacation or on strike, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Have listened to all your shows from the beginning, blah, blah, blah. You guys rock. Insert your own flattering comments. Blank line going across the page. Thanks for your truly stellar shows and awesome guests. More mumbo jumbo slash boilerplate. (laughs) I think we've started a trend here. Dave Weiner's gonna get a call. Okay then. My guess is that you guys must be sick and tired of all the boil plate smooching, so I thought I'd give you a little angle bracket criticism mode equals positive. In your show, you've had some parts that's been, how should I put it, slightly disturbing. <laughs> some examples. Uh-oh. Some examples. I actually wish I didn't remember. A duck with a dong the size of himself. Equipment to reduce your own well-hungness, if you also have the duck's curse. Men who probably used the mentioned device and started to dress like women but lacking female skills, soiling themselves. Do I need to say more? What are you trying to do to me? Give me nightmares? Come on, guys, and I thought it was over. Just when I thought it was over, you start with a weird wide web. Now is a good time to picture yourself, Edward Monks, The Scream, to understand my emotional distress. And here's the crux of his uh, letter here. My suggestion is that you let Mr. Kirk do something more interesting instead. Why not a segment that delves into a new technology every week? During a recent show, MRAM was mentioned. I think this would be a perfect topic, and there are plenty more. How about optical processors, multi-core processors, next-gen of Pentium M, you name it. The beavises and the buttheads in the audience are probably not that many and can get their fixes somewhere else. But there is only one .NET Rock show, so let's keep it geeky and not freaky slash <laughs> criticism. And, uh, you know, we we actually – I thought about that today. I thought about that because, yeah, you know, what what the hell are we doing, Rory? I mean, you know, we're going down this dark I path. I don't As
3: long as the check keeps coming, I don't really – I don't <laughs> worry about it.
2: We're going right? down this dark path that we, you know, we may not be able to recover from. So I thought what we would do is put up a little poll on the web And to see if Kirk Webb should die, basically. (laughs) So if you go to, um, what did I say? www.franklins.net slash web poll, that's W E B B P O L L, you'll see a poll there where we have some questions uh, where you can answer these questions and and you're going to help us determine the direction of this segment, The Weird Wide Web, and maybe, you know. Maybe my life. Maybe Kirk's life because, you know. After all, .NET Rocks is the only gig and he's got a wife and children and he's either going to be homeless or he's going to continue to do the weird wide web. It's up to you. His fate is in your hands. So I'm asking you to answer the questions. Give us your feedback and we'll leave it up here for a month and we'll we'll monitor it closely. It's going to be business as usual until then. Right, Kirk? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And we'll see. We'll see what people want.
3: And we, we're all about giving the people – What they want, you know, what's interesting about that poll? No. Yeah, is you're asking people if they want Kirk to be killed, and then you ask them how you how how they would like to kill him, right? Yes. If they Um, answered yes, but if you look at the results, the last time I looked at it, ten percent of people voted that they wanted Kirk to be killed, but then twenty three percent had provided ways on how to kill him. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's it's
2: very odd. Very odd. So there's a disconnect. We, you know. You could vote one way, one way and the, Don't the other. Don't you people way. know how to vote? I know. Yeah, basically. I might as I might as well say this that we did use Peter Bloom's polling package to do this poll, and it took me all the half an hour, set up the database, dropped the control, set a few properties, it works great. We're gonna have Peter in talking a little bit later after we get to Fritz. <clears throat> okay, just a couple more. I know, I know. But you know, people have people have, have come forward with really interesting things to say and We just have to let them uh, be heard. So this one came from uh, Richard White. Who's Richard White, Kirk? (laughs) He's a uh, co-worker of mine. A co-worker of yours. A cube
4: cube, uh, mate.
2: He says, hmm, I sit across from Kirk here at EDR and just let me say that since joining Rocks, his ego has actually spilled out into the aisles.
7: (laughs) (laughs) I actually had to step
2: over his swollen head to get into my own (laughs) cube this morning. I want the old Kirk back when the only thing spilling out of his cube were the reams of spaghetti code and the occasional foul odor. <laughs> Speaking of foul odors, do you listeners know that Kirk's initial claim to fame here was drying fruit on his monitor? Oh, uh, embarrassing. Under a small plastic Mets <laughs> baseball cap? Carrots, small oranges, and the grape went fine. However, Project Kiwi was a total disaster. <laughs> it was
0: really bad. All right. Well, <laughs> talk
2: about fruit flies. <laughs> and... Uh, that's 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 can, the mail.
4: You can dry an orange on a monitor. I really in don't want to know. A week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> well, the old school monitors, these flat panels really well, suck at it.
2: That's time for the news <laughs> with the right blood. The news of the week.
4: Now obey.
3: Huzzah. Huzzah. Okay, so I'm I'm a little sad because one of the news items that I was going to do, you already did. That was um Mitch Gartner's or oh. I'm sorry, Mitch Denny of NotGartner.com's dot uh, Shrinkster utility. Oh I'm sorry. So, I'll just Stal give another shout out for that. You know, I'll just mention it again so that people remember it. And it kind of infects their brains like a mental virus. Okay. So, but <laughs> I, I am, I am excited about that. I thought it was pretty cool. And there's it's a lot of love for cool. Shrinkster coming out. And I think that's good because Shrinkster is all .NET and blah, blah, blah. And it's great. Okay. Yeah, so,
5: yeah, 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 sure.
3: Yeah. So, on to the actual news. I've only got two things because the third thing as everybody knows by now was already treated in an earlier portion of this episode of .NET Rocks. As you just mentioned. Yeah, which is fine. Which is... I am I mean, I'm not like upset about that. I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. Okay. Right. So, okay. the first news item here is... Uh, we talked about Project Looking Glass before on the site. That's the Sun project that's supposed to add this really crappy 3D to a 2D desktop and make it sort of like halfway between 2D and 3D. It's sort of like 2.5D. It's, like it's a 2D, where 3D. it's not really 3D, but you add this sort of fake depth and then you make everything really confusing and stick dialogue uh, windows on the back of a window and... kind of flip things around and things are upside down and, and, you know, you think you're taking drugs or you think your operating system is taking drugs, right? And you want to get it, like, take it to an intervention and blah, 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 blah. And it all gets really complicated. Yeah. Well, the news now is that Sun is looking into licensing Project Looking Glass. So, it's no longer going to be just a straightforward open source uh, project. Um, In the future, you might actually have to pay um, for all the stupidity and ugliness that is wrapped up in Project Looking Glass. So, if you were planning on using it, that's something you might want to think about for your project there. Um, the next item of news, and this is sort of big too, this is something else we've been following, the whole Linux migration that was going to take place in Munich where they were going to move like oh, you yeah. know, five bajillion uh, desktops to Linux from Windows. What's the latest? And they've had, a, they've had a few uh, stops and starts. They've had a few problems along the way and they were worried about patent issues and everything. But now they've decided um, that even though there's still a possibility that they're going to be putting code that is violating patent patents that belong to other companies uh, on, on their PCs, they're going to do it anyway. Okay, really? so uh, I just wanted to say um, people of Munich on behalf of .NET Rocks and the .NET Rocks crew, I just wanted to say that our thoughts and prayers are with your wounded, and we hope that it goes <laughs> all right. Um, and aside from that, i don't I don't really have any have any news. Go download that shrinkster thing from Mitch Denning.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
4: <laughs> now obey.
2: Feel for your wounded. That's good stuff. Well, uh, Rory, when I mentioned – I was talking to Rory the other night uh, – last night, as a matter of fact. He just got his Vonage phone and uh, he said – as we were just testing it out and he, he says, hey, by the way, who's the guest tomorrow night? And I said Fritz Onion. And he goes, wow, wow, really, <laughs> wow, holy shit, wow. <laughs> well,
3: you know, I mean – and, uh, it, was some, it was something like that, yeah. Yeah, you know?
2: yeah. And I, I felt just I might have said like,
3: wow, one less time than that. I don't okay. know. I mean, you're kind of painting yeah. me in a funny light here. You know, All right. Well, anyway.
2: So let me introduce Fritz. Fritz Onion is a founding partner of Pluralsight, Pluralsight.com, a think tank organization. Deli- what is a think tank anyway, Rory? I think I'll start a think tank. That might be a good tax write-off for us. (laughs) A think tank organization delivering in-depth technical content and training where he focuses on web development with ASP.NET. He is the author of the highly acclaimed book, and I agree, Essential ASP.NET from Addison Wesley, and is currently working on a second edition that will cover ASP.NET 2.0. He frequently publishes articles on .NET in journals such as MSDN Magazine, .NET Pro, MSDN Online, and InformIT, or InformIT. He is also a regular speaker at industry conferences and is the track chair for ASP.NET at Windev in Boston. Fritz lives in southern Maine with his wife Susan and two children, Zoe and Sam. For more information, go to Pluralsight.com slash Fritz. Fritz Onion, how are you?
8: I'm good. Thanks, Carl.
2: Thank you. You know, you don't talk like a Mainer.
8: Yeah, well, that's having grown up towards the southern end of the state. We have a bit of a different accent down here.
2: Do they treat you like you're from away? Well, if
8: you go north, they do, yeah. Yeah. They they treat us pretty much like Massachusetts folks.
2: Right, right. Well, welcome to the show.
8: Thanks. I'm glad to be here.
2: And you have a true fan in Portland, Oregon.
3: Yes, you wrote the ASP netbook. I mean, for anything that goes beyond just like dragging and dropping a a data grid onto a form or something like that, I always talk, I mean, your book is like the book, you know, I I see people walking around occasionally at, at, you know, user group talks or whatever, and I see that book and and it always starts conversations because the people who have read it or who are reading it or who have at least flipped through it and taken a look at a few of the chapters know that that is the ASP.net book. So, I mean, you know, I'm sorry if I'm gushing a little bit, but I lived with that book um, last year while I was doing a lot of ASP.net work.
2: Before you yeah. respond to that, Fritz, let me just add my two cents. I, I too, love this book, even though it's in C-sharp. But, I mean, you know, the, the whole idea of the book is – and what makes it great isn't that it's – you know, it's not a tome, right? It's 400 pages or less than 400 pages. And there are books that have more stuff like Dino Esposito's book and stuff. But you are really good at explaining, like, the core ideas behind ASP.net and complex things that uh, you, you have a way of explaining them very easily. And it's a very, very good read, easy to understand, easy to read, even if you're, you know, just learning C-sharp or, or whatever. It's uh, great stuff.
8: Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, just so you know, there actually is a vb.net version of the book. So Really? You don't have to strain yourself uh, cool. looking at the semicolons.
3: Yeah, there you go. This is an opportunity for conversion, Carl. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, I'm actually
2: one of those vb.net programmers who reads C-sharp pretty well. I think – and I tell that to all my students, too – is that you should be able to read it. Yep. Understand. So so great stuff. Um some of the, the the better chapters that I really enjoyed, and one in particular, which I didn't find this information in such great detail and, and so well explained anywhere else, is chapter four, the HDB Pipeline. Um, tell us about that chapter and what this is all about.
8: Pipeline? <laughs> um so the focus of it of that chapter is pretty much you know, what happens to a request when it comes in through IIS and ultimately ends up at an endpoint in the ASP.NET uh, worker process. And, you know, just looking at all the different classes that are involved, and um, the, the chapter really emphasizes the points of extensibility in the pipeline, which yes. is where it becomes interesting because you can build your own pieces and plug them in, right. either at the module level where you can intercept requests and do filtering or... Uh,
2: the else. HTTP context class is really the the thing that you really focus on is saying that this is a, the thing that you should be looking at because that's right, sort and of
8: context. Yeah, context is kind of the glue for the whole thing, right? It has all the information relative to a particular request coming in, and anywhere in the pipeline, you can always reach out to the context and grab the pieces that you need and look at it, modify it, and then the last last piece uh, is the the endpoint itself, the HTTP handler interface. Um, the pages implement, and you can build your own classes that implement the interface, and just drop them into the pipeline. And um, yet another endpoint in the whole this request architecture.
2: And I really enjoy. You know what's what's very cool is you talked about the HTTP handler, and you showed just a very small class for for creating a calculator. Um, and it's fantastic. It's it's probably less than what I would say twenty lines of code. And you're basically simulating. A web page, and instead of using a web page an ASPX page, you have uh, you've associated the calc extension calc with with this particular class, and then you just basically look at the request items that come in, and uh, add, subtract, multiply, or divide, or I guess it's just add, subtract, and multiply, and then return the response. But but it's a good uh, example of how to use IIS and, and ASP.NET with things for other than just standard HTTP
8: uh, Yeah, well, it's, it's actually kind of an interesting question there that often comes up. I, mean, I often go through and talk about the pipeline and tell people how you can build your own custom handler and write the code directly. And they kind of look up and say, well, you know, why? Why would
5: why you would do I? that? Yeah, right. Yeah, Why
8: don't well, I, mean, right. I just write a little page, you know, and have look at the query string and write a little chunk of code in the page that parses the query string and returns the result. You can set the content type and the you know, page directive. Um, but there are some really specific cases. Well, there are a couple of reasons, you know, to consider it. One is the overhead of the page processing architecture. There's right. actually a bit more involved when you get a request at that level where you have to go construct the page and create the control hierarchy. And, you know, it's not, not huge, but it's, it's certainly a, a little bit more overhead than you'd get with a straight HTTP handler implementation. Yeah. And the other issue is, um, you know, if you're trying to map it onto a, Different uh, extension, and right. you want to sort of simulate the you know simulate the results to map on. One example that I've done in the past as a good good sort of demo is, you know, suppose you want to send back um, uh, data in the format of an Excel spreadsheet, right? And you want you want it to open up directly in Excel when it comes back. The only way to, way to really do that in ASP.NET is to write a custom handler and associate it with you know an X. Ex- uh, xsl extension set the mime type to the application excel um, mime type mm. and then stream back you know comma delimited list of data and off you go so and, there, there are several things that you really can't do with anything except a custom handler so but it doesn't yeah, always jump out at people that,
2: that's how they do things like with report writers too right you know streaming yeah, pdfs yeah, exactly. yeah.
8: And, and then you, you're not fixed to sort of writing out the hard file on the server before you serve it back, you can just dynamically generate it and render it back as whatever content content type you want it to appear as.
2: Yeah, sweet. And uh, the other thing that I um that I learned from reading your book, and I learned it nowhere else, was about .ashx files. Tell us about that.
8: Yeah, .ashx is um it's just a way of building defining a custom HTTP handler, um, and you just create a .ash extension file uh, you can't do it there's no direct support in Visual Studio for creating one you know there's no option that says create but if you just create a text file and name it. ASHx write a class and stick it in there that implements the HTTP handler interface and then put a um, handler directive at the top of the file uh, if you point your browser or make a request to that endpoint it will dynamically compile the class for you uh, and instantiate it and then ask it you know dispatch the request onto it Interestingly, the uh, Web Matrix utility, the um, IDE that the ASP.NET team wrote, mm-hmm. and you can download for free on ASP.NET slash WebMatrix, has a, an option for adding .ashx files to your project. So it's almost like the Visual Studio.NET team overlooked it, but the ASP guys put it, put it in their own personal IDE.
2: Rory, uh, you, you've written some custom handlers too. In fact, you did one for cascading style sheets.
3: Well, yeah, I actually did. But um, uh, the the thing about custom handlers, when I'm talking to people about custom handlers, which I love, um, uh, is that it seems like some people are kind of confused about the difference between custom handlers and HTTP modules, right? Would you, would you, Fritz, would you want to talk about the difference? But like, what is an HTTP module and, and and how is it different from a custom handler? Just because it seems like this is an area where so many people get a bit confused, probably just because they often have just HTTP written in front of them and they're not pages. And so it's easy for people to get them kind of confused.
8: Yeah, sure. Um, The the analogy I like to draw is if people are familiar with building ISAPI, um, you know, constructs in IIS. uh, The HTTP module is analogous to the ISAPI filter, which gives you, you know, higher level interception, whereas the HTTP handler is sort of analogous to an ISAPI extension. Um, But in general, handlers are endpoints in the system. So anytime you write a handler, you're writing a piece of code that's going to act as a request processor. Anyone that makes a request that comes in is going to go, you know, to some endpoint and that's what you're writing. When you're writing a module, you're building a class that's sort of sitting in the pipeline, mm-hmm. can sort of, you know, put its feelers on any request coming into that application. But it, it doesn't necessarily send anything back. It's not an endpoint itself. Uh, it's there more.
3: It's just a hook.
8: Yeah, it's just a hook. Like it's a sink. A of, yeah. You know, the most common implementations that are common things people do with uh, modules are building um, authentication or authorization that's how the forms authentication stuff is built in ASP.NET
5: yeah.
8: it's all through custom modules but yeah that's a, it is a common misconception
3: mm-hmm. Tell us about how you wrote the book the method that you used because it's pretty unconventional in, in, in this day and age right?
8: My method? Oh, oh oh, right you're referring to the blog post sure Um, yeah so it came out in February 2003 um, a little over a year ago I guess Mm-hmm. and um, I was writing it, and I submitted this manuscript in, say, must have been October 2003 uh, mm-hmm. 2002, mm-hmm. and it probably took about a year, year and a half, to sort of pull things together. Um, but leading up to it, I, I'd been teaching courses on ASP.net and uh, you know, giving talks, and it was all sort of a culmination of all the activity that I'd been doing with ASP.net. Um, and the technique that uh, Rory's referring to is uh, my writing technique, which... A lot of the book, I'd say on on the order of, say, 40 to 50 percent, was written longhand in a little notebook that I keep (laughs) so that I can... um, Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, the way I usually write is I, I go through and, you know, experiment with the technology, make sure I understand things well enough and become familiar with it, you know, enough, well enough familiar with it so that I can sort of walk away and keep all the pieces in my head. And then I just like to go, you know, go somewhere and sit and think about it and how to organize it and... I just don't like carrying computers everywhere I go. So I often end up writing it longhand.
3: Wow. Yeah, I thought that, that was pretty incredible. That is incredible. So something something I'm kind of wondering about as well is, uh, you know, the, the nature of your book is a lot more low level than most ASP books out there. right? Most ASP books are like, okay, now, you know, drag that grid onto the form and, right. you know, fill out your data set and hook everything up and, and go with it. But yours like really gets into the guts. Now, do you think, I mean... I know that I found a lot of that stuff extremely useful, but do you, do you think that there's something that people might be missing out on if they don't get into the lower level stuff, like what you're what you're teaching? Are they going to be missing out on a lot of things that are really valuable to them, or this or is this something that you might think is more useful to a smaller group of developers? I mean, like, what, what, how much of this stuff do they really need to know? Because you, you do go pretty low level and you explain everything very clearly, and and there's a lot of it to explain.
8: Yeah, that's a good question. There's, uh, I mean, that's kind of a point that I struggle with is. I, I, my approach is, is always just to dive into the technology, and I don't like stopping at some point and saying, "Well, that's good enough." I assume it works sort of like this for the rest of the way. <clears throat> I really like to, you know, go in and find out exactly how it works and make sure I understand the implications. So there's a fine line, certainly, <clears throat> between you know what do you need to know to start using the stuff and what what should you know and what sort of impact does it have. Um, everything I put in the book is um, stuff that I, I think most developers really should understand fairly well. Certainly, people that are you know, architecting websites that, you know, you need to know how things work at a at a relatively low level, even if you don't necessarily, you know, program at that level mm-hmm. to understand the implications of your choices at the higher level.
5: Right. OK.
8: So, you know, as you're deciding whether you are going to use user controls or custom controls or if you're going to you know, put things off into include files, I agree, or, man. Uh, all these different decisions, which which even gets worse in the next release, by the way. I mean, there's right. so many different ways of doing things now. That uh, it, it's really important to know what sort of trade-offs you're making each totally. time you make a decision about which technology you use.
2: That's a good argument in general for learning the low level stuff. I mean, it's such it's so hard because you never know what you don't know, and you don't yeah. know how much time it's going to take for you to learn the low level stuff, and is it really going to pay off? Is it not going to pay off? So people rely on you know anecdotal you know uh, stories from their bosses and their managers and stuff. It's really tough, but yeah. it, <clears throat> the best way, thing to do is to you know to learn it, learn it all down there and see, especially at the dot, at the, at the CLR level. And, uh, I don't know if you have to go down to the, the processor or anything, but at least understand what the CLR is doing. Um, Fritz, somebody in the chat room wanted you to explain the pipeline, like give us some meat here. Give us uh tell us what happens from request to response.
8: Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> so I think I better open my book for this. <laughs> Uh, actually, one of the interesting demos I like to do when I talk about the pipeline is uh, sort of you know build ASP.NET from the ground up. There, there's a nice hosting model that, that um, is exposed through the system.web.hosting namespace where you can just go and create an instance of this class called the HTTP runtime and ask it to go or just pass in a request object to it and have it process the whole thing. And it's a pretty compelling demo because you can show in just a few lines of code how it's possible to do everything ASP.NET does just in the context of, say, a console application. Right? Right. You create the runtime object. You create a, create a request object. There's one little subtlety. You do have to create it in a separate app domain. So you have to spawn off a separate app domain. But then you just pass it across and, and make the request. You can actually mimic exactly what ASP.NET is doing by using the hosting um, interfaces. So I encourage mm-hmm. anyone out there, you know, if you really want to start getting a feel for how the pipeline works. Um, try using the hosting namespace and, and coding up a little sample for yourself. But having said that, so pipeline request coming in, um, the whole process, or the whole request is sort of bootstrapped, like I mentioned, by this by this uh, class called the runtime, the HTTP runtime. Mm-hmm. And as that comes in, it sort of they, they create an instance of this class called the worker request, which contains all the necessary details associated with the request, like you know the uh, information about the client. Um, the requesting URL and the endpoint and all of that. Um, And then the next thing we'll do is it's going to go find the application object, um, which you have a a control over. You can actually define, you you can actually plug in your own instance of the application object by using global.asax, which I'm sure a lot of people have done. Right. Um, So the application object is created by an application factory thing. Um, In amongst the other things that are created is the context as Carl mentioned earlier. Context is a, like I said earlier, there's sort of the glue that connects all these pieces together. And it's, it's interesting that you can write classes, you know, pretty much anywhere in the context of a request and reach up to the to the HTTP context object because it's always stored in a thread local, uh, thread relative reference um, to any, you know, anything inside of that request. So you can just reach up using the static current property of the HTTP context class and find out all the information like session and request and response that you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you get to the application object, that's the thing that sort of uh, you know, goes and finds the actual endpoint. Um, the modules that we mentioned earlier, the HTTP module classes, are hanging off the application. So as the request is processed by the application, the modules have their chance to intercept events that are exposed by the application, like begin request and authenticate request, et cetera. Uh, and then the application. Decides what endpoint is going to process it. So, what HTTP handler implementation is going to process it? Typically, a page uh, mm-hmm. goes off, finds the factory for that guy, has it created, and dispatches the request.
2: And from there, you, yeah, from there you get the the page init and the the page load. Yeah, and then it, and it the starts with the whole page lifecycle.
8: Um, yeah. Pages go goes through its init, its mm. uh, uh, load, its uh, pre render, and its eventually it's unloaded, and then that instance of the page is discarded after the request comes in. It's also interesting to note, one thing that a lot of people don't realize when they first see this architecture is that although the pages themselves are not pooled, that is, you don't don't reuse instances of your pages, um, there is pooling at the module and application level. So when a request comes in, if you have concurrent requests being made to a single application, which is likely to happen in most cases, uh, you'll have distinct instances of the application and associated module classes um, one per request thread that's actually dispatched into the into the worker process. Hmm. Um, but pages by default are not are not uh, recycled or pooled in any way. although there is a mechanism for doing that you could you can implement your own handler factory class and actually build your own little pooling mechanism if you want to. but pages by default won't do that
5: right
3: that's very very cool thank you yeah i thank you so that, that, that was pretty slick um yeah now uh uh another thing that i that i love to ask this question of people who really know their stuff so forgive me it's a little bit generic but i can't help it i love hearing the answers that i get so um what do you think at least in your opinion and and based on your own maybe even like emotional reactions whatever what do you think the number one mistake is that people tend to make with aspnet and I realize that that's a huge question because there's so many different types of applications that could be written. But just pull something out of your hat and, and, and go with it. And don't, don't sweat it too much. Just something that really gets you and that you wish more developers didn't do. Because asking this question to me is usually a good way to figure out what I'm doing wrong and what I can fix in my applications.
8: <laughs> Things people do wrong. Ugh. Really good one. Um...
3: I mean, you spend all your time with plural site guys, right? You probably do everything right. you know, we But want I mean, just names, think into those man. times.
8: <laughs> well, I spend a lot of time with students, too. So it's, uh, yeah. I, I certainly see my fair share of mistakes. The thing is, I uh, do Let's see. I, I guess one thing, maybe it's not an ASP.net-specific thing, but one thing I, I see, especially people that aren't familiar with a lot of web development, do immediately is latch on to session state as a way of just keeping some state around on behalf of each client. Okay. And that, you know, people start building applications that just have this huge dependence on session state and that, that adds so many limitations to the to the way you can deploy the application and how its performance is going to work right. and how it's going to scale. So that, I guess that's one thing that just that comes to mind. Um,
3: well, what would you suggest they do in, instead of session state if they need to pass around um, session level data?
8: Yeah, well, you... um, Good question. I mean, you you certainly want to think about it. And anytime you decide you're going to use Session, I usually tell people, you know, before you take that step, sit back a minute, go talk with some people and make this design, you know, high-level decision about whether you're going to start doing it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, Most applications are already accessing a database. So one common solution is to sort of, is to have a, you know, user-specific table in the database that you have indexed with. You can even use the Session key if you like, or build your own sort of custom data store. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're dealing with authenticated users already, uh, then you have some identity of the user coming in and you can just reach into a table that has that user's identity and store information there. Um, there, And, it, you know, if you can avoid, a lot of people use session to transmit data across pages from one to another be, just because oh, that right. seems like the easiest thing to do. Yeah. There are a number of solutions for that. Um, uh, you can use, you know, query strings, obviously. So you can, if there's small amounts of data, you can just pop them into query string variables. Uh, mm-hmm. But you have to be careful because that's, Visible in the browser and the URL and the address bar, right? Um, you can all there's there's a nice technique I, I like to use in ASP.NET where you can do a instead of redirecting to another page, you can do a server .dot transfer, and yeah. then there's a really nice collection in the HTTP context class called the Items collection.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
5: a
8: generic name value pair collection, and it's there for the duration of the request.
3: Right. So you can just stuff
2: things into it. Yeah, but they don't stick around between requests, though.
8: It goes away between requests, absolutely. Right. And that's why server.transfer was the key to that, right?
5: right. Mm-hmm. So you get
8: the request coming in, you process some data, the user posts the form to you, you grab the data, you stuff it into the items collection of the context object, and then you do a server.transfer, which doesn't actually go back to the client. It keeps the request on the server and just evaluates the next page that you pointed to. And, ah. the, and the items collection is still there when you go to that next page. Oh That's cool. That gives you sort of a one level of indirection but, way of storing data.
2: With server.transfer, though, that ha- that opens up another bag of worms, doesn't it? It does, it because does. Because then you're not, you don't have URL accuracy. You don't
8: have the URL switching, that's true. Right. So, you know, these are all considerations you have to make.
2: But it's a great trick to freak out Google and to get away with uh, having redirected pages submitted to Google. You know that trick? Getting <clears> redirected pages submitted to Google? Yeah, yeah. We were doing, uh, what were we doing? We were doing some advertising the Google keywords or something. And I'm probably going to get sued for this. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, Edit this out. Yeah, we'll edit this out. And uh no, we won't. And uh, basically when you submit a URL as a, as a, as a link, you know, from an ad in AdWords in Google, if you, mm-hmm. uh, from that page, redirect, do a response, redirect to another page, they go, eh, that won't work. Can't do that. Uh, but okay. if you do a server transfer, they have no idea. Right. Hmm. So we would set up one that, that was like from Google, you know, .aspx or whatever. There was server transfer to our regular homepage. And then we knew by looking at the hits on from Google ASPX, you know, how many how uh-huh. many hits we were getting from there. Now the whole
8: world knows about it, too. Yeah, right? yeah. Sorry.
2: <laughs> guilty. So, so, Fritz, I'm guilty of I'm, hacking.
3: <laughs> so, Fritz, <laughs> let's say that somebody did have to use the session object. Um, I've I've seen a lot of discussions about the best way to go about using it, right? Like, the typical way to do it is to be, you know, using a lot of uh, uh, just string literals and, and stuffing objects in and out one by one and things like that. Do you have any yeah. advice there? I've heard people talk about creating structs in which they keep every object that they're really going to need so that they only have to access the bag once um, You know, in and, and, and get all the data they need. Do, is there, do you have any like, best practice advice there at all?
8: Well, I mean, the thing about session is by default, it's just in memory in the worker process, sitting mm-hmm. there in your app domain and all of the memory is there per per client until their session times out or you, you know, clear it out. Right. So the, the issue of round trips to the session is typically not really an issue. Um, okay. You know, right. The is all there. It doesn't matter if you go piecemeal, you know, first name, last name, age, whatever, or you just, you know, define structures. You're not really making any optimization when you're saying, give me this structure of data as opposed to give me each individual piece, as you might be if you're going back to a data server of some type.
3: Interesting. Okay, yeah, because I've seen some discussions um, to the contrary, but, you know, quite frankly, I'm going to trust your opinion. Um, well,
8: yeah. What you might have heard in discussions is ASP.NET does have a way of hosting your session state in an external server,
9: which right, like, um, yeah. it solves
8: the problem of deploying into a web farm if you are relying on session state, which right. has sort of been a traditional okay. issue. Um, interestingly, though, that still is not an issue. right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the way the, the off-host model, the off-machine model works is when you every single page that, that has a request that's going to use session state goes to the server that's either a SQL server or a state server running an right. entity service, mm-hmm. and it pulls all of the data associated with that user back to the web server, and it keeps that data there for the duration of the request and then flushes it back again.
2: Hmm. So
8: again, there's no, you know, the chattiness of your interface the session really has no impact on the performance.
2: Well, no, that's, that's good enough. Let me, let me jump in here for a sec. Uh, what I'm thinking of is when I have a an object that's a reference type object, and I put a reference to that in the session, you know, obviously it's not copying the object into some other area of memory. It's just holding a reference in the session, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. Unless, of course, we're using um, the other two options, the, the session state and the SQL state, then it gets serialized with a LOS format formatter, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And. So if I'm Actually, just, I'm sorry.
8: It, it does. I don't believe it uses a LOST formatter. It just uses binary serialization and stores it in a blob on the other side.
2: Okay. But if it's still, if it's in a single machine, uh, we're just, you know, if it's a reference type, we're just holding a reference to it. So the data is still just in memory, but since there's a reference to it, it's not being picked, it's not being garbage collected. It's hanging around between r- trips, right? Yes, absolutely so, true. So if you have like a, a, a structure, which is a value type, now you're sticking it in the session and copying it back and forth and stuff like that. So
5: Yeah, that's a good point
2: actually. So it might actually be more efficient to use a reference type, to use a class, but you know, I'm sort of picking at straws there. But I just <laughs> but that's the kind of low level shit that you need that you need to know in order to make those decisions, right? Because I think Richard said something, Richard Hale Shaw said something last week about stuffing values into the session, taking them out, changing them, stuffing them back and you know, if you're using integers and things, that's true, but, you know, or it's structures, but if you have classes or even, well, strings are their own kind of weird thing, but strings work like value types in that in that regard too. But uh...
8: Yeah, so that, that you're absolutely right. So if you, I mean, <clears throat> there could be lifetime issues. I mean, if, if you're putting classes in a session that, uh, you know, you're expecting to get, to get cleaned up for whatever reason, um, they're certainly not going to because they ha- now have a rooted reference to them and they're going to live for the duration of their being held in session. Yeah. Um, but you, yeah, storing a reference type versus using a value type will will certainly be. Although, again, we're talking all in memory here, so right. I'd, I'd be hesitant to steer people one way or the other.
2: And really, is it going to matter if you make a copy of a 10-byte, 20-byte structure? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. come on. But you do have to, you know, if you if you pull it out, you make, Here's a question. So if I if I if I get a, a structure from the session object, like I take it out, I, it comes out as an object, so it's boxed, right? Yeah. So if I modify that, since it's boxed, I don't have to put it back in the session, right?
8: You want to save. Changes? In other words. You're taking a value type out of the session, right? Taking a structure out of the
2: session, make modifications. You don't have to like reassign it back into the session in order for it to stay there because it's boxed because you pulled it out as an object. Is that true? Or if well,
8: when you pull it out of the out of out as an object, it creates that temporary box wrapper for right. you,
2: and then you have and then to you're C-type making
8: modifications it. on a copy of the original that right. has the you know class wrapper on top of it. Okay, and unless you assign it back into session, I'm just trying to think through this here. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think those changes are going to be reflected in the session. See if so if
2: it's a class, though, you won't have that if it's problem. A
8: class is a reference type, so that the, any modifications you make to the class will be reflected directly in the object. Aha!
2: Aha!
5: Yeah,
8: so that's that's actually an interesting point. So any any structures or value, you know, aggregate um, value types that you put into the into the session will be effectively read only unless you push them back in after you make changes to them.
2: And strings work the same way, don't they? Because they're immutable. I mean, they're reference types, but I don't know how that would work
8: with a string. Well, you can't, I mean, you can't really change the string. They are immutable. Right, they are immutable. You change the, the reference that uh, the thing is pointing to. It. So if you actually change, if you, I mean, if you set a, a session indexed by something to a string, and then you dereference it and modify the string that came back to you. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't modify it, right? You can, right. Or you can look at you it. just make you a new can, one. put another string back in. And
2: then you got to stuff it back in.
8: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh an issue. Interesting.
2: Uh, Templates. Templates in ASP.NET 2.0, templates with, in general, the whole idea of templates in ASP.NET. We sort of talked about this a little bit last week, and um, especially like user controls. Sahil from the chat room says, hey, Carl, can you ask Fritz why they left out the ability to call a user control with a non-default constructor?
8: Call a user control with a non-default constructor. Um, Let's see, so when you first put a user control in, if using Visual Studio, it, it creates an abstract base class for you, and then the user control is just the ASCX file that uses that as the code behind. So I guess it's not clear to me how,
2: yeah.
8: I mean, I th- the user control itself is going to be instantiated as part of the control building mechanism of the page. I'm
2: th- I think he might be asking you why, uh, why you don't have access to that. Um, Object access
8: to directly. the construction of a user control?
2: Yeah, and to the object directly. Like if I put a user control on my page, like say yep. it's header one, uh, you know, it's a header.ascx, I drag it onto my page, I go into page load, header one dot produces nothing. I mean, I don't have right, access right. to
8: it. Yeah, there's actually an interesting trick that I use to get that to work. Um, and it, it depends entirely on how you create the user control. Yeah. So assuming you're using Visual Studio to create it and it does create a code behind file for you mm-hmm. uh, with the ascx file, you can go into that code behind file and you can add properties and methods and whatever you like, just right. like you could to a normal control, right? Right. And then you go, like you say, if you drag that control onto a form, you go to code behind and there's, there's no intelligence pops up. You have a member variable and, and it doesn't need to be access, accessible. Right. right. But if you take, if you actually declare an instance, uh, a member of the type that is the code behind file for the user control, mm-hmm. right? The abstract class. Right. Make it a protected member variable and make sure the ID matches the ID of the user control that you dropped onto the page. That hooks it up for you, and you're good to go.
3: That's slick. So
2: if wow. you make a protected property in the user control code behind itself, not a had, property but a member, a member. Okay, okay, a field. So a protected mem- member that has the same name as the ID, like say Header One. Yep.
8: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then you have full access to all. Now note that you can't access the actual. ASCX content yet, because that's not going to be there until runtime. I mean, you you won't see sorry, you can't access it, but you won't see any of the intelligence or anything.
2: What I usually do, and then I'll uh, I'll ask Cyheals' question again because he elaborated. Uh, what right. I usually do is I use Find Control, yep. and then I create a you know with events private variable, and I assign it to Find Control, and I look for it that way. Which just sure. seems, it just seems a little weird, but anyway, he says Fritz. My question was why can't I do page.load Control quote, control path, uh, you know, and then give some parameters.
8: That's the parameter, yeah. I that's what think. he's talking about. Yeah, so I mean, there's a way to dynamically load user controls by using the load control method of the page class. And apparently he wants to pass in additional parameters to have right. some initialization on the user Non-default constructor, got it. It. Without having to direct cast it to what you
2: Right, mean. right, right.
8: Yeah, so, I don't know. I, I mean, you, you can't, that, that's not really true for any controls that you can use anything but a default constructor because they're intended in general to be used internally to, to be built up by the tree of uh, uh, the page. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I think through the consequences here, if you had a non-default constructor. You certainly have to have a default constructor as well. If you had a right. non-default. Sure. So you could call it when you called the load control method on the page class mm-hmm. and pass in additional parameters there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, Congratulations. St- add a, a method to his class called a knit and call it afterwards.
2: There you go. <laughs> All right, man. Well, listen, Fritz, um, hang tight for a few minutes while we uh, we uh, do some stuff here, pay some bills. And we're actually going to bring back after the break uh, Peter Bloom, who you know uh, from PeterBloom.com, uh, who's got some new stuff to talk about. So uh, we're going to play some music and we'll see you on the uh, the other side of the hour. Well, you hear me talk all the time about ActiveReports.net on this show. And the reason is we love the product. Data Dynamics did a great job with ActiveReports.net. This is a reporting uh, engine for Visual Studio.net. Full integration with Visual Studio.net has a really familiar user interface for anyone who's used report designers before. You can use it with C sharp, VBNet, ASPNet, Windows Forms applications. And what's cool about it is it allows the reports to be compiled and included as part of your application for speed and security or distributed separately. There's also a beginner report wizard and a Microsoft Access Report Import Wizard. And uh, it allows the designer hosting of third-party controls, like chart controls, image controls, etc. It just works with the regular .NET controls. On top of that, you have a fully exposed object model, and you can modify and build reports dynamically and uh, output to PDF or HTML or whatever you like. It's all right there. We're not talking about, you know, big reporting servers. We're just talking about create a report, put it in your project, there it is. Datadynamics.com. This is Rory Blythe's new song called Sway. Sir. Good stuff, man.
7: Are, are you what's me? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll what's up you back. What's up?
2: No, no. I I said good stuff.
7: <laughs> oh, I thought you were what's upping me. I didn't know you're good stuffing me.
2: No, I'm good stuffing you, man. That was great.
7: Thank you. Thank great you. stuff.
2: Please don't adjust your set. That's right. Rory's microphone has seemingly disappeared, and he's on the telephone
0: right Jeff it, yeah it's definitely not my fault though I didn't mess anything up really you just leaned on the mute button while we were recording it <laughs> you know something like that. I needed to rest my arm and I'm sorry listeners but uh for the second half of this show Rory's gonna be a little bit lower five than he was for the first half of the show and uh like I always say if you don't like it you can have your money back
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right let's get back to the show yeah and uh, before we get back to the show and all the silliness and the, the cool talk, I wanted to bring on a friend of ours, Peter Bloom. And uh, Peter, are you there?
1: Yeah. Hi, everybody. It's good oh, to be hey back Pete. on the show.
2: Yeah. So uh, tell me about PeterBloom.com.
1: Well, I've been building controls and tools for ASP.net for more than two years. Um, I have four commercial products, most starting at $50, and several free downloads. Mm-hmm. My Peter's Date Package and Peter's Polling Package each received Reader's, reader's Choice Awards dot ASP.NET Pro Magazine this year. My Professional Validation and More is a hugely popular replacement to Microsoft Validation Controls. It greatly expands what you can do with validation while reducing the amount of custom code and the hacks you normally encounter with Microsoft Validators.
2: And uh, yesterday, Scott Mitchell blogged about your products and... Um... Uh, what is, but you know, we've had you on the show before describing them. As I mentioned at the top of the hour, we've actually built that uh, polling uh, page yesterday with your polling controls. But uh, you have something new um, called visual input security. So, what's that all about?
1: Well, visual input security, which I like to call Vice, um, it's <laughs> the first uh, product out there that can defend your site against hacking through the inputs in your pages, inputs such as visible fields, hidden fields, query strings, and cookies.
2: So you wrote about the seven aspects of good security on your website. Tell me about those.
1: Sure. They're knowledge, auditing, detection, logging, blocking, neutralization, and impeding. Knowledge means understanding what hackers do to attack your sites. Uh, The Vice User's Guide provides primers on each type of attack, to help give you that knowledge, I'll discuss the remaining aspects of security throughout the rest of what okay. we talk about.
2: Cool. So let's educate our listeners. Tell me about the types of input attacks that users can encounter and like how they are typically blocked and what else they can do for better security.
1: Well, there are four types of input attacks that visual input security can defend against SQL injection, cross site scripting, which is also called script injection, mm-hmm. input tampering, and brute force. Mm-hmm. SQL injection allows the users to enter SQL statements into your inputs and actually get them passed to your SQL database, where your database runs those statements. The hacker can do enormous damage, whether extracting private information, shutting down your server, or dramatically modifying your database. It always involves an ad hoc SQL statement. That means you build a SQL statement, like select or insert, uh, using string concatenation. Mm -hmm. Earlier I mentioned the term neutralization as a key aspect of security. You can easily neutralize attacks mm-hmm. by avoiding ad hoc statements. Always use parameterized ADO.net SQL statements. Right. However, the hacker will continue to hate your site looking for holes in your security. As they do, they use up the resources, unwelcome page requests, right. and added garbage and records uh, to your database. It's far better to detect and block these attacks using validators. Uh, the validators offered by ASP.NET have several limitations unfortunately. Okay. They cannot handle hidden fields, query strings, or cookies. Mm. And while they can block specific patterns like dates or integers, they can't handle free form text fields such as entries you might make into a message board site. Mm. Visual Input Security provides several new validators to handle these cases.
2: Cool. So what do they do?
1: Um, what do they do? They look at the the patterns in the text mm-hmm. and determine things such as, well, he's typed in a SQL statement instead of normal text. Cool. Uh, if you can detect an attack, you can log it. Logging lets you be alerted to attacks so that you can take action. For example, tuning your security, blocking an IP address, and cleaning up any garbage. Mm-hmm. A visual input security provides a comprehensive logging feature. It locks the text files, window event log. It even sends email notifications you can also hook it up to your own logging method- methodology. Oh, that's Move cool. on to cross-site scripting.
2: Yeah, now that wasn't some—that was more of a problem in older versions of ASP.NET, wasn't it? Which one? Cross-site scripting. Didn't they put in some code in ASP.NET?
1: Ah, yeah.
2: One point one. Well, let me to... tell
1: you what what it is first, so okay. I can explain what the problems are. All right, sure. Cross-site scripting, which is also known as script injection, is where you the hacker puts an html tag in along with javascript and later that text they've entered is displayed back on the browser to another user. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: Um, For example, you write a message board. Various users read the message posted with such an attack embedded and the javascript may be able to read their cookies and redirect to another page along with their cookie data.
2: Not good. Uh,
1: To neutralize it, you can use html encoding. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you just asked about is a feature called the validation request property which was introduced in asp.net 1.1 right. it it appears on the page declaration and is on by default mm-hmm. it handles all kinds of inputs uh, hidden visible cookies and query string parameters yeah. but it has several issues it can't log right it does not provide the same elegant ui as the validators error messages that it throws an exception page
2: not good yeah
1: and if you intend to capture html uh, tags and use them, you have to turn it off, opening yourself up widely. Okay. So you need to build some form of security to replace it. Okay. Uh, visual Input securities validators are already capable of handling, replacing the validation request property and handling all these cases.
2: Alright, so let's talk about uh, the other two, the last two, Input Tampering and
1: Sure. Input Tampering is found on inputs where you don't expect things to change. Um, hidden fields, query string parameters, and cookies. Usually the users aren't expected to go in and play games with them. Right. But the hacker knows better and replaces the values of these fields with something more suitable to their needs. There is nothing in ASP.NET to handle this. You've got to write your mm. own code. Mm. And my validators can detect and block many of these cases. Cool. Brute force is where the hacker repeatedly hits your site, attempting to break through. There are two common cases guessing logins and mm-hmm. attempting their SQL and injection attack.
2: Like a dictionary attack or something like that?
1: Absolutely. That's yeah. great for logins. Um, in fact, they write, often write little software programs to rapidly use a dictionary attack. And imagine all the resources being used on your site as they're requesting pages and once every two seconds or three seconds for their own needs. Hmm. Uh, Visual Input Security's Slowdown Manager monitors each attack.
5: Slowdown After a number manager. of
1: attacks, it can impede the hacker by redirecting them to another page, and preventing access to the original page that they're hacking for a time frame. You Mm. can build escalating rules with longer time frames and more aggressive response pages. This will frustrate the hacker and interfere Mm. with that software that is used to automatically guess passwords.
2: Well, it sounds like Slowdown Manager will also reduce the number of requests on your server. Is that right? Yeah,
1: that's right. It helps reduce uh, resource usage.
2: So you covered the aspects of security except auditing. So what is that, and how does your new tool, Visual Input Security, help that?
1: Well, you audit a site for uh, for input security issues by looking at all inputs and determining how secure they are. Visual Input Security does this with the security analysis report. You drop my primary validator on the page, the page security validator, and run the page. It outputs a detailed report in an HTML file format and after analyzing all the objects it generated on the page. It mm. associates the inputs with their validators and comes up with a rating of none, poor, good, or excellent on each field. It even makes recommendations on how to improve security. It, you use it as a guide to help you install the security you need on the, each page.
5: Mm.
1: Security really is a lot of work. There isn't a holy grail where, where you drop a little code and everything's right. protected.
5: Right.
1: That's because each input has its own unique rules, whether it's a date or a string or or a specific pattern. Uh, visual input security provides extensive tools and documentation to get the job done faster and better than you would do it by by doing it yourself. It took me about six months to figure it all out, write it, and craft things such as an algorithm to detect the difference between a SQL statement and plain English. Remember, SQL is English statements in itself. Yeah. And so, how do you determine the difference? And so, there's algorithms in here to help you uh, discern between an attack and human language uh, attack, uh, human language text.
2: How how much is it, and where can we get it?
1: Okay, uh, the price is two hundred fifty dollars, and it's available. You can go to my website, www peterbloom.com that's p e t e r b l u m.com
2: cool now I, I noticed that on asp.net you're as you, you may have said i can't remember but uh, all of the tools that you have on there constantly get five star ratings from your customers and you've got uh, a lot of happy customers out there me included i use your stuff and i love it and and fritz have you uh, have you uh, used peter's stuff before are you familiar with peter
8: yeah, I've run across the validation controls before, and they have uh, they have a much better approach or a much more comprehensive, uh, especially the, the multiple browser support, which is sorely totally missing in ASP.NET, release.
2: Yeah, it's good stuff.
8: Well, I'd like to take a moment to thank those
1: customers who emailed me and posted all those testimonials. Um, their thoughts are greatly appreciated.
2: Awesome. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on the show and telling us what's new with you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you later. Well, Fritz, I know we're chomping at the bit to talk more about ASP. NET, but uh, before we do that, we uh, we're going to talk to the still living, still not dead, Kirk Webb for the session we call the Weird Wide Web.
4: Utterly amazing, horrible, What's up,
5: Kirk?
2: What's up?
4: Um. Can I rant for a little while? Something completely unrelated, but uh, Peter Bloom actually sparked something that uh, was security, like a best practice kind of thing that really irked me. Mm -hmm. Um, I go to several websites, services, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to name any, but let's say a major car rental company or a satellite radio company Mm -hmm. where I sign up for a service or something and they ask me, hey, do you want to become, you know, a member or whatever? Give us a user entered
2: password. Right, right.
4: And then I receive a confirmation email and it's in clear text in. Yeah. with that password coming yeah. back.
2: That's really annoying.
4: How what tough is it for of? somebody to get a sniffer or something? Right. And, and, and we're talking about attacks, but.
2: And yet why? they have HTTPS on the website when you're entering it in, but yet they email it. <laughs>
4: exactly. <laughs> well, not only that, uh, forums, there's actually several software forum packages you can buy yeah. that do the exact same thing. Mm. Several that do that. And it just it, mm. it kills me, it kills me. Anyway. So you got I, some weirdness for us? Uh, we have some weirdness. Sorry about the rant. Um That's I'm actually okay. going to try to go all out to uh, save save my skin oh, today. Oh, okay. Uh, is that, the that very a good fr- thing or a bad thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, that all depends on uh, <clears throat> how you look at it. First one today is shrinkster.com forward slash 10Z as in Zulu. And this is um, – be careful. You're going to get me sued here, this aren't is- you?
2: pornography pornography warning this website <laughs> contains shellfish it's shellfish uh by
4: clicking here pictures of
2: shrimp <laughs> is this what we're talking
4: about it's pornography pornography yeah so dive in there's actually a pop up here that actually blocked on my machine but it yeah, pops mine up too. it's a <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh is having a it's good pretty time bad
2: here. um amateur hmm. movies gay <laughs> gay go, yeah yikes yeah, gay <laughs> <getting> pornography <prawns.
4: laughs> If you go to the movies, they have a movie of um, Clam Anderson and Tommy Eel oh. movie. Oh, no. <laughs> In, uh, it's actually pretty funny. My can favorite. You actually watch the movie? Oh, oh yeah, they have yeah. It's 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 a it's, uh, QuickTime QuickTime movies.
2: Oh boy. Oh boy,
4: pornography. You can spend a long <laughs> time here.
2: So now, is this just somebody who likes to eat shrimp? I don't and then know. They just... I don't know. Or is this just – But someone hey, has a lot of time. A
4: weird... it's, a, it's a nice site. It's a good site.
2: Click on the buttons you get ready to make your ears pop. <laughs> hmm. I don't know what that means. <laughs> if you're diving. And, oh, diving. I'm uh, uh, sorry. That's okay.
4: That's okay. Okay. Yeah, that's anyway, pretty good. that's, that's pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty good. All right. Not too bad. Not too bad. Now I'm going to – and that one actually was a gift from uh, a donation from Mark Anthony Spatera. I uh, hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, who um, was nice enough to uh, donate that link and send it to weird at net,
2: Which you should do if you have weird websites. If you websites.
4: have a weird site and uh, hopefully something new because most of the weird websites I find are old and it's uh, it's difficult. There's not so many out there. Anyway. That's all right. You
2: may be out of a job soon.
4: <laughs> you may be on the street looking for, uh, looking for a, a scrap of bread or a chicken wing or something. All right. right forward slash 114. This was uh, donated by uh, Gary Stanley, uh,
2: one of several. Oh. Yep. Oh. Yep. Restore foreskin and enjoy love makes. So this is yep. a foreskin replacement Whoa. tool? Whoa. Is that what that is? That's what that is.
4: Clampity clamp, nothing <laughs> compared to this, pal. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What? Yep. Just in case you thought. This isn't a goof now. This is not a goof. So, this is an actual stainless steel apparatus.
2: <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Say no to circumcision.
7: <laughs> Ouch. Oh, my God.
4: <laughs> half of you are saying, oh, my God. Half of you are
7: whipping out your credit card. Oh, Kurt, you're so <laughs> f-
4: <laughs> Yeah. I'm screwed. That's the problem, man. Hey, it's, he can edit this out. I can, the emails are
2: going to pour
4: in about <laughs> this. <laughs> one, oh, man. my God. I'm oh, my God. He's death death by fire. I no wonder hose.
2: Microsoft isn't returning my calls. <laughs> yeah.
4: <laughs> well. Okay. All that's right, all right. Insane. For our older listeners, this is uh shrinkster.com. This is also contributed by Gary Stanley. shrinkster.com 115. Yeah, see all you were saying. Oh, that's so bad, but where's the next one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. This the is sque- called the <laughs> geezer squeezer. Let's just say, you know, what? hypothetically hypothetically speaking, you're out on a hot date with someone you just met at at, at the nursing home, and and you want to go. And before you're jello or you're pudding, you, you you feel like possibly that you may have a control problem coming on. So you slip behind a gotta go, gotta go, gotta you, go right now. You gotta go. You slip behind the piano where where Myrtle's playing. You know uh, those were the years or whatever, and you and, and put you put on the, the squeezers, the geezer or squeezer. This is the clip, the Squeezer not the clamp. Clip. It's the squeezer clip, and it will um. Well, it will okay take care of any embarrassing problems. <laughs>
2: great Kirk, you know, I tell you to go easy on this stuff, and then you come with this stuff. I Dude, mean, you know. It's all or nothing, baby. Okay, last one.
4: <sighs> oh, there's more. Com. Right. Uh, this, is, this, is, this one's tame. This all was right. also contributed by Gary Stanley. com forward slash 116. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. This is – um. <clears throat> the number one name in flatulence odor
2: control products oh,
4: this is this is
2: different this is the way he repays me for <laughs> doing this little thing and putting up the website
4: and <laughs> I'll learn you okay this here is the uh <clears throat> odor the control. flat D innovations now this isn't
2: like a pill that you take nope this is <laughs> some apparatus again. <laughs>
4: This is a, something you wear, say under oh. your clothes. That oh. I mean, how many times have you been in an elevator, really? Oh and you're like, my oh my god! god. And, and and it's a tall building. And and
2: so do you say
4: like, oh, oh I boy. had some beans for breakfast this morning. I should <laughs> I <had> wear <laughs> my flatulence odor control product <laughs> I had product that leftover crab cake and crab cakes and cabbage. I really all right, need all to
2: right, get out of here. Just right. get out of <laughs> here.
4: Good <Are> lord!
2: Amazing. <laughs> that's that. that's disgusting. Horrible. Okay. So, you have some fans out there in the, uh, in the chat room. They're At, saying, uh, two or three. Two or three. Yeah. All right, folks. Well, there you go. That's the uh, Weird Wide Web. And, and uh, again, Fritz, um, we're sort of rushing through our bits here, but we do have one more uh, bit to get out of the way first, and then we'll get back to the talk with Fritz Onion. A great talk. If we go over a little bit, that's okay. But this is uh, Ask Rory, a monumentally awesome bit. <laughs> With the best music, I might add. Night when I was asleep. How you doing, Rory? I'm all right. You're going to hell for that music, but I know. You know, I'm, I'm I doing did. well.
7: So that's good.
2: Yeah. So Ask Rory is where Rory Blythe answers your questions about life, love, jobs, relationships, anything at all. You have a question, Rory will answer it. And if you send those questions to Rory at neopoleon.com, you'll read them on the show and you may actually get a response.
7: So what's and up? Yeah, type ask Rory is the subject. Just ask Rory because I'm filtering this stuff. Okay. Okay, so the first letter this week is, hey, Rory, besides web services for using InfoPath, what are data sets good for? Okay. So um, okay. the answer is nothing. Then the next question from this guy is, what about typed data sets? And I say typed nothing. So um, on to the next one. Rory uh, doesn't like data sets. <laughs> nope. We got, we got this guy here. His name is uh, – that was from Richard Norman, by the way, and this one is from Austin Wise, and he says, "Dear Rory, I'm a sophomore in high school and need a date to the homecoming dance. I'm not asking you to go with me. What I really need is advice to pick up the ladies okay so so Austin, I'm sure that you're aware that you're you you've opened up you know quite the can of worms here, okay so So I'm going to start by asking you some questions, okay? But since you aren't here, I'm going to answer in your absence, and I'm going to try to build up a few scenarios for you to work with, all right? So first, does the female you take to the dance have to be human, okay? (laughs) Because it might sound kind of strange, but by broadening your search to include all of God's creatures, you can really increase your chances of getting a date, okay? So there are only maybe like several billion human females on this planet, and most of them are not in your age group, so they aren't even eligible. That's a problem, okay? So, I mean, it would be a little strange if you showed up to your dance with, like, a 7-year-old Eskimo woman on your arm, right? I mean, I'm not going to tell you, like, what to do, but, I mean, I mean, that's just, I don't think that would work. So, point being, there aren't too many human females out there for you to choose from. But, on the other hand, according to work done by renowned world scientist Glenn Herrick, the cabbage aphid gives birth to an average of 41 offspring, and that aphid can have up to about 16 generations of offspring over a 7-month period. All right, so assuming that all the aphids' descendants live, there will be something like 1.56 septillion aphids available by the end. Okay, now granted, you're going to have to lower your standards a little if you want to go with an aphid or <laughs> something like little. that, but I mean, you've got to admit, I mean, come on. Like, those numbers sound pretty good, don't they, easy right? Seconds. Okay,
5: so That's that <laughs> it.
7: I'd recommend starting with mammals, okay? But don't rule anything out along the way. Like, don't turn into one of these specieses where you decide you're just, gonna, like, date within a particular phylum or something like that, all right? You want to really get out there. You know, I mean, if it's got tentacles, that's okay. Tentacles are beautiful, right? That's a motto that we have nowadays, isn't it, okay? Tentacles are beautiful. That's fine. Okay, just keep in mind that some animals do have serious drawbacks, right? So, for example, have you ever, like, tried putting lipstick on a cat? because okay, it's not that easy. Right? you, you got to trust me so so whatever you choose all right, I wish you the best of luck and just remember to get a rabies shot you know before prom and to pack a lot of tender vittles and that is ask Roy for the week
2: oh Fritz what the hell were we talking about before all that crazy crap uh, so there you go
4: just a little ear
2: candy yeah so anyway, Fritz, uh, ASP.NET 2.0. You've been working with it. I take it the betas.
8: Yeah, started on the next uh, edition of the book. So I'm
2: right, doing a fair amount of work. Your your five second elevator speech opinion.
8: Well, it's um it's really interesting to watch people's reaction as they see some of these features coming out. Um, but my first reaction is they fixed a lot of stuff.
5: Yeah, right? they went
8: through and they really. Listen to what people were saying out there, saying, I wish this worked this way, I wish this worked this way, I wish this were here, and they, they really put a lot of stuff in there. I mean, they, they gave us cross-page posting, um, you know, they gave us more administrative controls, they gave us some health monitoring stuff, um, just lots of really you know, useful things that you often wish were there now but uh, yeah. aren't, and they'll be there next release.
5: Right. And
8: then they made some pretty significant higher-level changes, so not, not so much changes as additions, really. Um, things like the provider model, and declarative data sources, um, which just, you know, make for very impressive demonstrations of putting together, uh, you know, websites that are database back backend uh, backed without without much effort at all. And then, yeah. it, 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 I mean, you can actually do a demo, and Scott Guthrie has done a couple of these at uh, some big conferences, where you can go through using the new declarative data data sources and the, um, uh, the new data bound controls and the provider model. And you can put together, you know, a pretty sophisticated application within a matter of, you know, half an hour, mm-hmm. um, without writing much code at all, and, you know, everything just kind of works. You get all the pagination, you get uh, all those features you had to work a lot harder for before. So there are a lot of interesting reactions to this. I mean, some some right. developers look at it and say, that looks awesome. It's going to take care of a lot of those details that I have to manage by hand today. Other developers look at it and say, oh great, you know, my boss is going to see this and say. Jeez, you should be able to build our website in uh, in an hour now, and not realize that there are actually underlying issues that have right. to be dealt with. And the other one is the other response is, you know, geez, these new features do everything that I do today. I'm not sure there's anything left for me to do. So, well, um, to
2: Sahil from the chat room, who's been quite active asking questions, says, and this is along the lines of what you're getting at, I think. In ASP.NET 1.1, it was very easy to inherit from a base page which is a pain in the booty in 2.0 with partial classes in ASP.NET 2.0. Master pages, albeit good, could be emulated in 1.1. So my question is, what is the design pattern you advocate for an ASP.NET 2.0 application inheriting from uh, a base page? Making
8: yeah, anything- that's a good question. So <clears throat> he's alluding to the fact that in 1.1, it's it's a pretty common technique to build a common base page template that perhaps renders the footer or the header or the navigation bar. And in 2.0, we have this replacement uh, called master pages, which just injects the user control around the main content of your uh, page, and Mm -hmm. then the page content goes inside of that. So you have a single uh, master page that defines the look and feel. Um, And then the partial class mechanism, as opposed to using code behind, which both are supported now, partial classes makes it a little trickier to change the base class, because you're no longer the class that defines the base class. It's actually the ASPX file, as it gets parsed, um, it's the one that decides who you're going to derive from. So that's actually a good point, that um, partial classes sort of take away that style or that technique of inheriting from a single base class across multiple pages in your application. Um, So I, I I would say, you know, try to stick to the new model, which is to use master pages for your templating of the site if you want to have common functionality um, across all of your pages, you can certainly build classes and just use them as components, which is another alternative to, you know, do a, do a has-a as opposed to an is-a relationship. Um, and if you really do want the is-a relationship, you do have a, a valid need to have this inheritance model, you don't have to go the, the partial class mo- uh, way, right? You can actually go back and still use the traditional inherits with the code behind and, you know, stick Stick to that, and that that works in conjunction with master pages as well. So there's, you know, -hmm. it's not really, you know, either or. You can you can sort of pick what piece you want to use in each context.
2: Do you know if in the final and this is a follow up question, uh, in the final Visual Studio 2005 will multiple levels of master pages be supported in the designer?
8: Be supported in the designer? Yeah, you can certainly do multiple levels of master pages programmatically right now. Um, Whether they're going to support that sort of Iterative rendering of nested pages uh, I haven't heard specifically now, although I'm sure it's a uh, challenge to get everything rendering the right
2: way. And uh, Jay Galloway asked, uh, does master pages do... I guess maybe we should define what a master pages is. I mean, it's been a while since Scott Guthrie's show where he talked about it, but let's just talk about that.
8: Sure, sure. So master pages are <clears throat> basically templates that you want to apply to a set of pages in your application. The so most commonly... You'll define some layout there, like the header and the footer and the navigation bar, and then individual pages can can annotate themselves to say that is my master page, and then all they contain are con- um, you know elements that are going to be plugged into that master page, content elements. Um, so the master page it has a dot .master extension, and then inside of your pages you can elect to point them to a master page and say you know use that as my framework, and then I'm going to plug in my own individual pieces. Yeah. So it's a nice you know system that people are sort of done in different ways in the past it's now codified and built into the into the architecture and the, and the tools.
2: the and uh another question is does master pages just do behind the scenes what many 1.1 templating systems are doing now just copy all the controls off the controls into a uh, a temporary array list and reconstruct the page one control at a time
8: Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what they do. In fact, if you look at the master page class, once it's compiled uh, into a class definition, you'll notice that it actually derives from uh, user control. And Mm -hmm. the way master pages work is when a page is accessed that is uh, pointing to a master page, that is, it's specified a master page for its template. The master page is injected as a child control, the first child control of all the controls on the page that you're accessing. Right. And then the controls that are actually in the page, like the, like the, the comment just just mentioned, yeah, are you know built up in their own list and then injected into the content placeholders inside of the user control, which is the master page. So yes, it's very similar to a tech you know techniques that people have been using in 1.1, with the advantage being that now you have designer <laughs> support and you don't have to you know go through all those oddities of dealing with uh, propagating control
2: trees around yourself. Here's an interesting question I'd like to ask. People, anytime we have new technology like this, that just sort of um, builds on the, the foundations that were laid before. <clears throat> Picture yourself as a new developer. Just getting into it. You've done some HTML. You've done some JavaScript. Maybe you've done a little access. Maybe you've done maybe a little Java. And uh, so you under, have a, you know, a, a working knowledge of how these things work. And you want to get into .NET. And you're waiting until ASP.NET 2.0. And you get into ASP.NET 2.0. It's like drag, drag, property, property, bip, bap, flip, flop, (laughs) you know, boom, there's my app. Wizard here, wizard there. Yeah. Do you you think that um, it's going to be more, you know, sort of the complexities are so obfuscated from the reality of programming for, you know, they made it so easy that you think we're going to have a new generation of ASP.NET programmers who... Uh, for lack of a better word, don't uh don't know what they're doing.
8: <laughs> yeah, it's um. <clears throat> well, I, I think you kind of hit an interesting point there, which is a new generation of ASP.NET developers. That's really what what a lot of this is about, right? They're looking to make this platform really appealing to developers that you know of all of all levels, right? Enterprise developers all the way down to people just building you know, yeah. little sites on their on their home machines, right? So, it, and as a consequence, you get a, a whole you know, different uh, set of features, some of which may be applicable to some developers and some, you know, some not. Um, so, are we going to have more developers that are using this technology without fully understanding how things work and maybe and maybe not making the best decisions? Sure. And maybe
2: will they need to know any more than what they know? No. I, mean, I mean, that's an obvious question, right
8: there. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is one of the nice things about this. In fact, w- one of the things that I can see in in the architecture they're they're giving us in 2.0, I, I think they're they're sort of overall goal here was to give you the ability to make these really you know quickly built sites that are data back database backed uh, backed mm-hmm. and make it so that even though you did it quickly and you sort of threw things together and you used the tools and the wizards and such make it so that that uh, the, the result that you create or the, the end result of your um, your work is not necess- it's, it's pluggable right so you can go back in afterwards and say well, yeah. So we have the UI, we have these things, but right now we're writing to a SQL Server 2005 file or something, or, or an Access database. Right. Let's change that out and create a new provider and map it into SQL. Let's, you know, try these other things. So I, I think they're certainly striving for the ease of use, the nice RAD features, but trying not to give up on making sure these sites had the potential to scale and and really be, uh, you know, deployed in a production <laughs> environment. Right. Now, how will they achieve that is another question. <laughs> but. Right. Uh, it's, it's certainly compelling to look
2: at it that way. Yeah. So you've obviously done, uh, some work with ASP.net 2.0. You talked a little bit about, about, uh, uh, you know, the templates and master pages and the things that you like. What are some of the things that, uh, you don't like about ASP.net 2.0? Things
8: that I don't like
2: in 2.0. Um, or you wish it would well, be different. I mean, one of the things,
7: well, like you were, you were saying before the break that, uh, that developers might have a really difficult time with some of the new features because there's so many different ways to do things. Does Does that ring any bells or anything?
8: Yeah. So let me let me tell you a little anecdote. Um, I was uh, talking with Tim Ewald the other day. He's he's a uh, guy. He worked for Microsoft last year. He just uh, he's coming right. back to uh, work for MindReef Technologies in New Hampshire. But he architected um, the new MSDN website, right? The main content um, uh, that that shows all the help files and everything on the MSDN mm-hmm. side of Microsoft. And they did this in asp suO right? They decided to dog dog food it and um, jump That's right the second
2: ASV2O. person that's used dog food as a verb.
8: <laughs> <laughs> oh. They decided um, to
2: dog food it.
8: That's, that's I, well, I won't use ask as a verb, so i make a compromise there, shall we?
2: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
8: <laughs> no, no. At Microsoft, everyone calls things an ask. I'm sorry, ask uh, is a noun. That's why. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Um so Tim, Tim was telling me the other day, you know, so we went and met with the ESP.NET team and said, we have these issues, we're trying to do these things, you have, you know, what would you recommend? And as they talked to individual people on the team, each guy would say, oh, we've got the perfect feature for you, right? And, and they'd say, this, this would solve this, and you could put it here and all this. And then go, they'd go back and talk to someone else and say, look, we're using this new feature this guy showed us, and, you know, this is how it's going to work. And that guy said, we're going to work. It's, you know, that, that guy, he, he wasn't thinking right. And so yeah. even within Microsoft, the point is, you know, which technology to apply where is not necessarily obvious. Now, admittedly, there, this is through the churn of development, right? So yeah. things were changing as, as they went. But I have a feeling a lot of people are going to struggle with that in this next release. Um, and, you know, knowing what's out there and what does what is going to be even more important than it is today yeah. in terms of how you build stuff. That's fair Do enough. you think there are any like, great pitfalls awaiting developers that they should
7: really be aware of, things they should really be careful about?
1: Well, I just wrote a,
8: a blog entry the other day on, on a new feature in Tumo called Profile, which I'm a little concerned about. Um, mm-hmm. Profile is a really compelling feature, which in many ways, I, I mentioned session state, so this obviously is an issue of mine. I mentioned earlier session state is you know something to watch out for as you're in your design. Well, Profile is basically a way of um, taking user-specific data and instead of storing it in sessions, Um, Tell ASP.NET you want to put it into a persistent database. Mm -hmm. Right? That's really nice. Just a few configuration entries and, you know, either setting up a quick database or letting it map into Access or SQL 2005, uh, you can have persistent per client uh, properties. And you can store whatever you want. Anything that's serializable can be mapped in there. Hmm. Um, The the only issue is the profile naturally lends itself to defining a, a whole bunch of very small properties. And unlike session state, like we mentioned earlier, where you're you're just interacting with in-memory data so there's no issue with round trips. Each access to the profile data uh, incurs a round trip to the database wherever that happens to mm-hmm. be. So if you've, you know, you defined 50 attributes or 50 properties for an individual user and you come in and you access all 50 of those attributes on a page, that's 50 round trips to your database for each Ooh, client yeah. that's accessing the page. Yikes. And so it sort of trends, you know, tends to build this sort of chatty interface if you're not careful with it.
2: Turn it all into an XML document.
8: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throw an XML document. Write your own data access layer that you know does does uh, you know chunks of data back and forth. There, there are many ways of doing it correctly, uh, but it's just so tempting to use features like that, you know, for things perhaps they weren't designed for. That, that's that's the concern. But mm-hmm. I can mean, very easily see someone start off with a profile and put in you know just favorite color or name or whatever, and then say, oh, good. Let's start storing you know all of the employee data in this profile. It, it'll in turn into the data.
7: Windows registry, right? Right. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah. I can see that.
2: It's all, you know, when anytime there's an easy way to store stuff like that, it turns right. into the Windows
8: registry. Right. If it's, if it's too easy, it's uh, yeah. guaranteed to be used a lot, right?
2: So uh, a non-techie question from the chat room. How did you figure out how ASP.NET works for your books? What do you do to take it apart and look at the internals? Reflector, perhaps?
8: Oh, absolutely. Reflector, reflect, reflector is probably the one, of most, one of the most run executables on my machine.
2: I love Reflector.
8: Um, yeah, and it's just gotten better. Let's Rotor has yep. done an amazing job with that tool.
2: And it, and it writes VBnet now.
8: It does, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's a great way to convert between languages, too. Yeah. yeah. It's um. In fact, I use that to navigate my own source code half the time. It's, it's much easier because <laughs> all the hyperlinks are there, you know? And cool. So you just point it at your assembly, and suddenly all your code's there. It's great. Yeah,
2: that's, that's a good point.
8: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I use Reflector. I'm Actually, I started off before a solid version of Reflector was there, and I was using Anacrino, which is another... Right. You know, decompiler that worked in a similar way. And also just, you know, compiling into, or decompiling into IL.
2: What happened to Anacrino, though? It sort of petered out, didn't it?
8: Yeah. I, I, the, the guy that wrote it, I don't think, um, kept up. He was, uh, I actually met him a few times. He was a um, college kid at UC Santa Barbara that just huh. went off and wrote a decompiler for .NET. Wow.
5: I'm
8: forgetting his name. I'm sorry I did that. But anyway, mm-hmm. he was a really sharp guy. Um, but I think he probably went on to do other things, start a career, or something like
2: that. Yeah, what Eric Starby is saying, Salamander from RemoteSoft. Have you seen that?
8: Salamander? No, I haven't seen Salamander.
2: Yeah, Salamander is one of those tools that does a million different things. Um, there's, there's a one that will turn it. to get the source code just like Reflector does. And also you can prevent it from being decompiled, so it's got a little bit of obfuscation stuff in there. Oh, okay. It's also got a linker <clears throat> that we've talked about before. And, uh, oh, I think I've heard of
8: this. Then. Yeah, yeah he,
2: he basically will go through the framework and pull out the uh, modules, you know, from the DLLs and from the assemblies that you call in the framework and turn your EXE into one big linked EXE that doesn't require the framework. Right. And um, <clears throat> we haven't had the guy on. We've tried to get him on, but I guess schedules or whatever. But I asked Brent Rector about that because you know he has an obfuscation tool and Brent rector I really really look up to him he's a brilliant guy and uh, I use his uh obfuscation tool uh all the time and uh he's he's he he doesn't have a very high opinion of it oh, because really? he he says uh, and we'll have to have him on to talk about it but he says the guy uh took some shortcuts and made some assumptions and there's ways to break it and blah 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 so but you know it's interesting. You should get like the obfuscator wars going on. Get that guy yeah. from Muratsov. You know, get uh, the guys from Preemptive. Get Brent on here and just let him go. You know that would that would be good radio, ladies and gentlemen. That would be great, wouldn't it?
8: <laughs> All right, funny you talk to the Java guys and they they'll tell you we went through this exact <laughs> same thing five years ago. Right.
2: Right. Right.
8: Obfuscation wars. Right.
2: Yeah, you know, Jay Galloway follows up saying, seems like they need to implement a local database system like SQL Express on the web servers. Uh, you'd have your permanent info on a central SQL server, and your volatile stuff goes in the local profile DB.
8: Um, yeah, that's not a bad idea. In fact, that's totally achievable <clears> <throat> as it stands today. I mean, you, you could, the, the profile provider, which is the thing that's going to define where the data gets stored, by default will go to a local SQL Server 2005 instance. Yeah. Flat, flat—you know—file storage. Their file mechanism, mm-hmm. and then that doesn't mean necessarily you have to store all your data there. You could, you could be very careful and store, you know, small amounts of profile data, and then with all of the real data in your application or all of the, you know, important data that you need to store in a transacted database, go through your normal data access layer or whatever you happen to be doing. Yeah, it's, I, I can certainly. I mean, I'm not saying don't use profile. Right? It's certainly very convenient. Yeah. I'm just, I'm worried. It's just an example of one thing that. It's very convenient, and I can see people sort of jumping onto it and holding on for dear life and just throwing everything in
5: there. Mm. Yeah.
2: So we, uh, so, so any, anything else that sort of uh, you're concerned about in uh, the way they did things or the way they didn't do things? or. Well,
8: another, another thing that I've, I'm still trying to decide, you know, how, how to present it to people or how to decide on best practices is the declarative data sources? Um,
2: yeah, that's interesting stuff. I'm not sure myself. You, you
8: can you can just place a you know a data source control in your in your ASPX file just like you would a regular control.
5: And, query and in there, and you
8: associate a series of typically SQL statements that right. influence how that's going to interact with whatever um, data source you're trying to interact with.
5: Yeah.
8: Um, but it just kind of I don't know the the the, the prospect of having SQL just sort of spilling all over your ASPX pages.
2: Well, you can also call store procedures of course, but but sure. it removes all asking
8: that the store procedures, yeah.
2: It removes the data access code like out of your compiled XE and into an XML file, which is I don't know, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm not sure if I like that or not.
8: Well, it certainly does. I mean, the provider does more than just, you know, CRUD stuff too, which is nice. So you you can just do a standard or uh, you know, put a put a data source control in there. And if it's if it's possible, it'll automatically implement things like paging for you, and you know sorting, and it it, it they're they're pretty intelligent. So it's nice to have those features. Mm-hmm. But yeah, whether whether um, embedding SQL in your static uh, or declarative ASPX files, a good thing or not, is mm. be nice. Maybe if that were a little more flexible, where you could where you could uh, grab the SQL from.
2: What do you think of that, Rory?
7: Um, I haven't actually I haven't actually looked at that yet. To be honest with you. Um, the, the the bits of ASP.NET 2 that I've been diving into have uh, really just been I've been getting excited about master pages I've been looking at the provider pattern the model that's actually built in and oh, I've been really falling in love with that
2: if you could would you like move your your connection strings your queries your store procedure calls and your binding t- definitions out to the config file does that seem like something that no. would be good
7: yeah I'd, I don't I wouldn't even go into detail I'd, I'd just say no yeah. I wouldn't want to do that
2: it's a little too exposed, or
7: it just—I uh, I, haven't—I haven't actually looked at it, and yeah, so I'm... I really can't talk about anything in, in any uh, it, that's, thats in a... any detail. But just from what you've just told me, and from what I've heard you guys say, you know, off the bat, I don't think that's a
8: feature that I would be interested in using.
5: Yeah, yeah.
8: I did. just before that's we drop that topic, there, there's another interesting aspect to having intelligent data sources, though. Um, one thing that struck me as I was sort of digging through these things was. In the past, when you've done data binding to controls, it's always been on your shoulders to decide whether you wanted to leverage view state to retain the state for that control across postbacks, or whether you wanted to repopulate it every time, and you know you had to sort of play that whole handshake and decide what to do. The data source control is actually intelligent enough to know whether the control is being bound to has view state enabled or not, and even though you don't call data bind anymore, it calls it implicitly for you, but it will not call it implicitly on the postback. If view state has been enabled on the control, but if view state has state has been disabled on the control, it will automatically do it. it will automa- you know, go back and do the actual data retrieval each time. So it's, it is kind of nice to have that level of smart built into these things. I'm just you know having it all in a declarative format in the SPX file. I wanted to I wanted to move on um, before the show's
7: over and uh, ask Fritz about plur- plural site. Uh, I I can't even say a plural site, Um, and uh, just you know, like, what is it? I mean, it seems it seems like all of a sudden all these super brainy people like join together like Voltron and form this gigantic programming robot.
2: Yeah, what is a Um, think tank anyway?
8: (laughs) Yeah, the think tank word is not something I like to use to describe it.
2: That sounds like a bunch of retired military people sitting around, (laughs) you know, some kind of new world order thing.
1: No, no, we they, um,
2: they release like a statement, you know, and it becomes <laughs> the word of god or something, you know. Yikes.
8: Quite that extreme. <laughs> yeah, so uh Keith Brown, Aaron Scott and I just started up uh started up a company um a few months ago now. Mm-hmm. And we're we're doing training and content development primarily. So we have, you know, a number of contracts with Microsoft where we're helping build course materials and uh um, you know, white papers and that type of thing for the product teams. We all work pretty closely with the respective product teams. Keith is our security guy. Aaron does a lot of web service and XML stuff, and I'm obviously ASP.NET. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a we have a big event coming up um, in uh, November on the Microsoft campus. And we're going to tend to do these things, you know, a few times a year, where it's uh, it's called our campsite SIGHT, um, but it's it's for enterprise developers building distributed systems in .NET today. It's really it's a very pragmatic course on you know, what do you need to know today to go out and actually build something that lasts and is durable and performs yeah. and uses the technologies the way they should be used. Um, so we sort of see that as a, you know, a hole that needs to be filled right now. We have all these technologies floating out there, and it's never that obvious how you're supposed to connect things together and what does what. So, yeah. How do people sign up for this, for Campsite? Yeah, if you just go to Pluralsight.com Campsite, camp s-i-g-h-t um there's a whole page there describing it with a um uh, you know links to the registration page and all that too so okay cool
2: awesome
7: welcome anyone that wants to come is is there like dough involved i mean what's it going to cost me
8: uh yeah it's nah uh, we, it's free <laughs> i think it's 29.95 okay it's, uh, it's five 10 hour days with uh, oh wow okay. meals provided and stuff and there are going to be four Wait. instructors it's Keith and Aaron and myself and Don Box is going to come give some talks too. So cool.
2: Is Don uh, going to be part of
8: Plural Sight or is he? No, Don is just a he's, he's at Microsoft he's and he's a free he's agent, a yeah. longtime friend of ours, and he's always he's been looking for a new outlet to uh, you know give some talks at and and host his blog.
2: Pretty good bass player too, actually.
8: He's an excellent bass player. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs>
2: There you go. All right, so um, stick around because we're getting to the uh, time of the show where we need to talk to Richard the Toy Boy about a good toy and a bad toy. So uh, we'll uh, stay on the line, and we'll come back to you after after Richard. 39-3. And uh, out there in Vancouver, British Columbia, we are looking for Richard
9: Campbell. Richard Campbell, can you hear us? I'm still out here. How are you, my friend? How are you, Carl? Good. Uh, things are good, man. What can I tell you? It's beautiful and sunny out on the West Coast. Sunny? Really? Well, not anymore. It's yeah. the middle <laughs> of night here, just like it is over there. But. <laughs> uh, so uh, what toys you got for us? Well, you know, it's funny, I uh, I always like to involve the guest in our toy selection, so I asked uh, Fritz, uh, gave him some themes to work from, and he grabbed onto the Mac theme, which oddly enough, we seem to have a lot of Apple stuff going on in the show this week. Yeah, we really do. I don't did. know why that is, it doesn't normally happen that way. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, the good news is, is, I found some really great toys in the Apple space, and, and some not so good things in the Apple space, All so right. I'm going to start with the good one which is one I've been holding in my back pocket for a while, and I love it a lot. And it's shrinkster.com slash one I as an in indigo. Okay. And that's going to take you to one of my favorite devices. Oh, yeah. Which is Apple's little Airport Express. Now, if you travel a lot, you want one of these. Mm. The reason is that it's just about the smallest NAT router you can lay your hands on. Usually, NAT routers are, well, they're the Linksys size things, the size of a, of a hardcover book, but it yeah. also has a brick and cables and so forth and so on. This little guy here is the size of a deck of cards, and the outlet is built right into it, so there's no brick. Hmm. Very nice. You nice. plug it in, and it serves as a wireless NAT router, so you wow. can uh, buy your DSL service from the hotel mm-hmm. and share it with everybody in the room and further if necessary. Wow. Wow. Uh, You know, as well as I do, Carl, that when we're out hanging with the geeks, we all need wireless. Absolutely. We're all communicating via the internet and shifting files around and so forth. And this is just an easier way to go about it if the hotel you happen to be in doesn't provide it for you. Now, this does that's not the only thing this little gizmo does. You don't have to have a Mac to use this, right? No, you don't. It's following standard Wi-Fi standards. uh, So you don't have to uh, worry about any of that. It'll work with anything. What does one of these things cost? 129 US. Oh, so we could give one away. So, yeah. It's a bargain and I think we should give it one away. Yeah, sure. And it, that's not the end of it. You know, it'd be great it's just a wireless NAT router. That would be enough. But yeah. it also has USB interfaces on it so that you can hook up printers and it supports iTunes. So, one of the things that Apple's really pushing on this is that you can set up an iTunes server, plug this device in near your stereo and then it has stereo outputs into your stereo system mm. and you can feed your MP3s into your stereo system with it. Wow. Very cool.
2: Yeah, we have talked about this one before on the show, but I don't think we ever gave one away. But it's very, very no, cool stuff. It,
3: it,
9: it's very worthwhile device. I, I'm quite keen on it. I'm quite impressed with what, what you can get for the size of the package. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, actually not Mac-centric at all, although mm-hmm. it is white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. <laughs> so what else you got for us tonight? Well, you know... I found this thing that just blew my mind. I couldn't believe it existed. And uh, I got to take you to it. Shrinkster.com slash 117. And this comes. thing is like a good toy and a bad toy oh, in God. one. You yeah. know, I love the modders, right? The modders are my friends. I'm thrilled to death with a good mod. Yeah. And so when somebody does something like this, I'm really impressed. This guy got his hands on an iMac.
2: Okay.
9: And he decided to make it into a PC, which. You know, on the surface, sounds like a good toy. He gutted huh. an iMac, and he put a PC into the chassis, replaced the regular tube with an LCD panel, wow. and, and so forth and so on. He crammed the whole thing in there. He even used the regular connectors from the iMac so it looks and feels the same. He had to gut the power supply to slip <laughs> it in there. It's some serious work, and there's not a lot of room in an iMac case. I mean, no. Really? Plus, you know, doesn't have proper cooling. He, he had to put in his own fan mounts and get all that to work. Mm. So, I mean, I'm blown away. In a little tiny iMac case, you know, it used to be so slim and trim. There's a whole PC up and running. And he goes, and in, "You know what the bad part of this is?" Yeah, what? He put XP on it and then put OS 10 themes on it, so uh-huh. it still looks like <laughs> an iMac. <laughs>
2: That'll really turn some heads when people come over for dinner. You know?
9: Oh, check out your. app. Whoa,
2: that looks, looks a cool. lot like Windows. <laughs> <laughs> as a matter of cool. fact, it is. So You could like lie and tell them a it was so bad.
9: And it's a bad toy. TC emulator or whatever. Right. Let's give away an Airport Express. And as usual, I'm going to make you dig around on websites right. to find the answers so what do they for have me. To do? So I'm actually going to ask you to look on the iMac mod site. Mm-hmm. If you read carefully, you'll, he'll tell a little story about when he disassembled the case, there was a certain part he needed that he found in the case when he took it apart, and he lost it before he put it back together and had to mm. fabricate his own. So, you tell me what that part was that he lost in the creation of his PCI Mac when yourself an Airport Express.
2: And uh, send those uh, if you're listening live. Now, if you're just listening to the archive show, this isn't going to work for you, okay? So uh, if you're listening live, send those to .net rocks at franklins.net, and we'll be standing by listening to music, and the first person who uh, sends us a, uh, the right answer will win. And you're listening to a little bit of live Franklin Brothers here, uh, doing a little takeoff on Take Me to the River while we're waiting. John Emick, and it's a the drive mounting bracket. John, congratulations to you. Bravo, bravo, bravo. And uh, we'll be sending that to you. Uh, but of course we're going to need your address. So, John Emick, please uh, send me your mailing address. I know you've won before, you know. So, uh, <clears throat> we don't keep your, we don't keep them around. Well, anyway, um, Fritz, I just want to uh, thank you for sticking with us through all this silliness and Really, really appreciate the uh, the book. The book is Essential .NET with Examples in C Sharp with a forward by Eric Olson, the program manager of Microsoft's ASP.NET team, and Fritz Onion is the author. He's been our guest. And what can I say? It was a, it was a great show.
7: Thanks very much. I enjoyed myself. Yeah, it was good. So when, when, when's the next one coming out? When's the ASP.NET 2.0 version coming out? Yeah. Yeah, well, they keep pushing the... Release date of ASP.NET 2.0 out, so I just keep pushing my book release out.
8: And it gives
9: you some okay. free
7: time. Um, so you're hoping to like get the book out at this about the same time as
8: ASP.NET 2.0. Yeah, about the same time or shortly thereafter. I'm, i awesome. you know I want to make sure that the stories in it are the ones I want to be there. So yeah, I,
2: we'll, I totally we'll hear you. To well, Fritz, thanks a lot, and on behalf of myself and uh, Rory Blythe out in Portland, Oregon, and uh, uh, Kirk Webb here in the studio, Jeff Macejolic out in the sound room. There, Jeff, yo yo, and. Uh, <laughs> Richard Campbell, out in Vancouver, British Columbia, the Toy Boy. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week.